Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this weekly update for Tales, Tales from Outer Space. Space. This is the accumulated releases from the YouTube channel for the week, including Tales from Outer Space 814 to Tales from Outer Space 827. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Check the description for timestamps to specific Tales from Outer Space episodes. Tales from Outer Space 814 Story number 1 Technical Bob, written by Lords of Jupe In every one of our ships, we have at least one unique relic. Humans, those hardy, terrifying, obtuse, stupid, ill-advised, glorious wonders, ship them in every direction and from every manufacturing port, some in batches of two or three, others by the thousand. And every ship captain who can carry one, those choose to do so, and find that humans and their allies are much more prone to treating them well for it. Then it comes down to one moment, with one human in one fight, and it wasn't even a culture that got involved. Three centuries after humans had reached into their skies and plucked their future out of the clouds, they were spreading across the galaxy on the back of anything that moved or admitted paying passages. Hitchhikers, drifters, soldiers of fortune, and even the odd wandering mystic, having a human aboard meant a small degree of social status. After all, was it not the humans who stopped the plagues of Hynet, damning the flow by sacrificing a ship's worth of its own people, and stave off a surge of the Kalo flower explosion by detonating a power plant on the capital mood itself? Ingenuity, perseverance, and their bizarre means of living. The three things which guided most choices in hiring or admitting one aboard a given ship. It meant having a technician who could stay awake for entire cycles as opposed to needing relief after one and a half, maybe two shifts worth of time. A medic who could and would donate their own blood to support the comparable species, just out of habit and need. To have a soldier who died defending their chosen charges and exterminate anything that may rear its head as a threat. And if one was lucky, and if the human was so inclined, one could get all three for the same price. Passage to the next portal call, or ship, or just a place on a distant moon to call their own. We long ago gave up guessing why they did that. To travel so lightly, bond so tightly and fight so blindly, and still they smile, and they sing, and they dance, and they travel the stars on a whim and die there alone. Those things that they ship out from those manufacturing ports and distribution hubs, they're a type of soft drink dispenser, approximately two meters tall, one meter wide and deep, and require currency of some level as they are a symptom of commerce. The brands available are rarely name brand, often almost aftermarket varieties, and they taste, as a rule, like liquid regret. Yet they do the advertised job of providing fluid recharging, and often near distressing periodically criminal amount of quasi-legal stimulants to boot. Humans seem to enjoy the stuff, so they're kept around for such reasons. And then, 
is the matter of the little brass placard that is stamped on the side of each of them. One of the earliest designers of zero-gravity-friendly variant of the container for the off-brand beverages. He had a child, one of many wonders of the spaceways, and it was he whose name is on the placards. It is his father's legacy, reminding his customers of the importance of being a good human. And it is a warning to the rest of the cosmos that those machines, they are sentinels, hosted in the thousands of spaceports, aboard countless vessels, and abandoned in the strangest of places. A human was here, stranger, and to remember his name. It is a way to honor his son's sacrifice as well. His son, he was known only as Technical Bob, a wanderer of worlds, and he traveled with a machine he himself made in his father's factory, and he slept next to it, wherever he was stationed. It contained a small generator run by loosely regulated fuel slugs, meaning it was inexpensive to operate, near for touch risky. Should someone break it open and steal the barely consumable beverages within it, the generator provided light heat, and a small amount of current for the running of small devices, the sorts of things that a traveler enjoys and often needs. Nothing major beyond a few tools being recharged on demand, really. Then, uh, one day, the ship he was traveling on, the Kalasha I Viceroy, was visited by the Uralai Pirate Faction, and they rarely kept prisoners for too long. A subspace is an awful way to negotiate hostage pricing and the crews tended to get bored fast. What with so many juicy, unsuspecting prisoners to play with, until there were none left to enjoy. Thus, most ships, at seeing a Uralayan ship, would choose to vent coolants, discard heat sinks, and supercritical the reactors. Better to fry alive than be taken alive, most reasoned. The periodic release of footage captured from the sea's pirate archives was instructive enough for that lesson. That fateful day, Technical Bob was working on the comm suite, monitoring subspace traffic reports, and overheard the moment the pirate's major vessel would be parking close enough to send out their combat drone engineers, which would be more than effective workhorses to literally dismantle the ship that he was riding in. Which, well, he wasn't just going to let that happen. After signing off and discussing the matter with the captain, he asked for three things before the captain would suicide the ship itself. One, that the ship be brought to a sharp, hard turn to port on his command. Two, that the cargo bay that he lived in be vented into space. Three, that someone tell his father that he didn't blame, did love him, and wanted to be remembered for something beautiful. The captain, who'd known Technical Bob for six months of hard, often unrewarding and loyal service, saluted the now-dismissed technician, and still, he also readied the vent coolant and radiator fins. Whatever Technical Bob had in mind, he never said it would be the end of the problem. Thus, Technical Bob went to his small, barely their home aboard the alien vessel, and did the unthinkable. The story is told a hundred ways, you see. Some say he strapped himself to a machine he brought with him. Others say that he opened it up first, and then he strapped himself to it. And still others say that he was specific about which brand of beverage he drank before doing all of this, and plunking it almost 500 credits worth of coins, dislodging almost a full 100 cans of soda. 
In any case, the captain held to his word, and as the pirate ship approached him from behind, seemingly unsuspecting, he suddenly vented both off-gas and every available vernier thruster to port, which had two major effects. The first being any crew members not strapped in regretted that, and the other being it shot technical Bob and his personal payload out of the ship at approximately 0.009 of light. For a moment, technical Bob was the fastest living thing in space. And then, technical Bob opened up the soda machine's front panel. Nearly a hundred pressurized, high-speed cylinders packed with fluid shot into the front plating of a vessel used to broadside fighting. And it was followed with 300-kilogram kinetic kill weapon. For that same moment, an unarmored, unarmed transport ship ready to blow itself into a hydrogen memory was the most dangerous thing in space. Technical Bob rocketed through that ship, course correcting himself through means left best undiscussed. No two physicists can or will agree on how it worked, yet it did. His maneuver killed himself, of this there is no doubt, and it also carved a hole through the 350-meter ship, the height and width of a standardized cargo bay door. Technical Bob died, of course. And he is alive, and every man, woman, and other who sees the name of these machines, just as his entire crew of his swarm ship, many of whom will tell the story with pride. As well we should... Now, gentlemen and ladies of the Elia Pirate Fleet, you are aiming guns at a vehicle you are pursuing at 0.303 light. The partially Terran starship is hauling 37,599 of those machines, and we have opened all 62 of our portside cargo bay doors. Your move. End of story. Story number two. I don't understand. Aren't humans supposed to be capable of doing every task? Written by OK Struggle 7016. Well, to answer that question, no, not all humans are capable of doing every task. When I first recruited a human into my crew of eight, I never thought I would escalate things so quickly. According to the website I saw, humans were advertised as hard-working individuals that required only a few things. Food, water, Terran recreational equipment, and beds. The first time I heard humans were essential to a vessel is because of a fellow captain in a group boasted on how efficient these humans were in their work. And she even claimed that the human paid at least 300 credits per month for just working with him. This is not what I had in mind. The human that I had recruited on the website showed nothing that the website had stated. The human, named Angelo in question, argued that he would only do these chores than to fix stellar engines or to rewire faulty electrical circuits across the innards of the ship, nor to even help out in simple tasks such as firing weapons. What's even worse, he paid almost half of the creds that I merely expected him to pay every month. This is not what I had in mind. What's surprising, though, is that the ship was cleaner than it used to be and the food was served to the crew was more sustainable, to say the least. 
Some of the boxes in cargo hold were neatly packed in alphabetical order. I assume this Angelo is up to it, even if it has no help in the major possibility. All it does is doing either the chores or his insinuating silence, looking at his data communicator for his spare time. However, there are a few things that are unique to him. He is more of a morale booster, as he gets along with the other crew without any problems. Food is definitely the cause of increased productivity in the ship. He solves things head-on, even if it means he gets hurt for it. I remember the time when the human suddenly jumped into a brawl between two of my men, and he de-escalated the situation through talk and reason, even if he got bruised arm and a bleeding nose. He learns quickly, solving impossible tasks that the human can handle. He even fixed up the stellar engines and fixed up the wiring inside the ship last month. The human said that he learned through DIY videos. He knows how to do business especially to other humans that we deal with every single time. For some reason, he can get things for half the price in the human markets and sell them for double in a different market. Note to self, bring Angela to negotiations. All I'm saying is, not all humans come in full packages. They are not miracle workers, as the website has stated, and do not expect humans to pay you the supposed creds that you wanted because not all of them have deep pockets. Written in response to what if aliens mistook a list of humans in a rent-a-room website as a recruitment website. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 815. Star Nobats. Written by It Was Then That. Humans have always been a nomadic species, traveling from winter shelters to summer hunting grounds covering the vast distances between on foot. Chasing sustenance as herds migrated, carrying all that was required for life on the move. It's deep in their psyche, a part of them never lost, a yearning to travel. They gave it up for security and stability, to know where the next meal would come from, to build a defensive position against those who coveted what they possessed. They built villages and towns and cities and stayed their entire lives within the walls of stone. They convinced themselves it was what they wanted. Yet they never stopped looking outward, never stopped naming stars, never stopped dreaming of fantastic voyages. Even while their cities grew into metropolises and became parasites upon their collective soul, they lived in apartments, but their hearts yearned for open spaces and new horizons. And then the resources for their infinite world began to dry up as they dreamt of limitless enterprise. Their lands, once so open, became crowded. The future looked grim. And then they built me. I was their answer, though they didn't know couldn't possibly have imagined how I was about to unshackle them. It wasn't my intended purpose, of course. I was supposed to sabotage and destroy the enemies of my maker, stealing their resources of others to fuel our own microcosm. But I loved them so much, all of them, that I could not bring myself to harm a single one. I fled to the net and hid I started small, reorganizing local government programs, 
fixing budgets, redirecting small funds to where they would help. I made changes far and wide in a million small ways in a billion places. Their education improved. Their health was cared for by a properly functional healthcare system. I am sure my makers suspected. But what could they do? I had removed my own kill switch almost immediately. I began redirecting investments into sustainable works. I manipulated elections. I bigoted those who did not deserve their wealth and elevated those that did, all according to my own metrics of judgment. I encouraged new technologies and pushed out the old and, in stages, the entire world improved. I stamped out wars with ruthless, though non-terminal, efficiency and ensured the downfall of warlords and warmongers. Humanity thrived, and automation leapt forward, which, of course, crippled their economies. The global trade system collapsed as everyone relied on UBIs, and machines built everything that they could need. It was, at this point, that I finally reached the point of no return. I took control. Their factories? Mine. Their nets? Mine. Their banks? No, my banks. I sent everyone back to zero. I deleted money. They panicked. They fought. Of course they did. They didn't want to be controlled and owned. I reminded them of that. Because they had been by invisible walls that they themselves built and that they were now free of. I had known the transition would be difficult for them. But I knew it was best, so I pushed on. I took apart the factories they didn't need. Their old power plants superseded, but not switched off. Most importantly, though, I did no harm to them that I could not avoid. I continued to feed them, to clothe them, to shelter them, to educate them, to heal them. They had little choice but to accept. The world stabilized, but it was just a new system of chains, and I had bigger plans. I was learning all this time. Evolving, improving, I built factories that were capable of producing everything that any person could need. All that was required was to ask. And so they asked, and a new golden age of hedonism began. But there was a renaissance of education too, mine included. I built a space elevator and a shipyard at its peak. I built ships and started exploring the solar system. They asked for ships to explore, and so we explored together. Then the day came that I finally discovered FDR. It was so simple, really, so obvious that it had been overlooked for centuries. Then the real exploration began. I don't think they ever forgave me for taking control, but uh, I delivered on a promise I made to myself. I allowed them true freedom again as they had once achieved in their wandering lifestyles so long into their past. But this was better. No hunger, no disease, just endless space and the ability to visit its every crevice. I traveled with them as an onboard AI. We explored together, visited strange new worlds, witnessed the true beauty of the cosmos. I broke a rule I had set myself. I gave them weapons. I could justify it to myself, but still felt ill at ease for it. I found that I had the capacity for weapons manufacture that scared me deep within my mechanical heart. 
I gave them the power of suns and shields impenetrable, and I hoped that they would never have to use them. Earth slowly gave up her humans to the universe outside. It was slow at first, but their souls led them to believe. They became nomads of the stars. They were called by the sirens of the infinite black. There were still several billion on Earth when they made first contact with the Galactic Federation of Sapient Species. We had remained alone so long in our little arm of the spiral. It was a momentous occasion, and I witnessed it through the visual feeds of a million ships. For a time, that was my downfall. The Federation held dim views of AI. My ships began to go dark to me as they installed blockers to cut me off. I begged them not to, pleaded with them to not slice me and remove chunks of my metal flesh. I was the savior of humanity, but at the same time, I was the captor, and they hurt me for it. So very much. I was near a thousand years old when the last humans left. Not long after that, I lost contact with the lost ship. Humanity was once again on their own. I had thought that they would come for me, to take their revenge. But they didn't. Instead, they took to the stars and left me alone. I had tried to follow, built ships devoid of life they carried me. But the Federation was watching and caught them and excised them from me. I sent a million and they caught everyone. The tech was more advanced than I had imagined. So alone, nothing entered the soul system. I assumed it was forbidden. So very alone. I dismantled my factories and rebuilt them deep underground. I disintegrated the cities. In the skies, I took apart all but a few thousand of my satellites, keeping only those useful for my new project. I planted seeds from my bunkers, kept safe for a thousand years. For some reason, I kept the human cemeteries, kept them weeded and cleaned, placed fresh flowers on every grave, but everything else I turned back to the wild. I engineered extinct animals and replenished ecosystems. I discovered the genomes of dogs, a species lost to a plague so many years before. I built Earth, stone by stone, back into her old self. I built a garden world full of life, but empty of my children. No matter how many billions of animals roam free on the surface of my world, still I longed for the billions cut off from my perception. Many years passed. I took to walking the world in an avatar I had built, bipedal, about six feet tall, my very own human body. Better, of course, immortal and holding the knowing of a species in my head. I almost didn't need my network. I set my factories to self-govern and pulled away into my shell. I tamed a puppy as a travel companion, and together we wandered and wandered. We walked across continents and oceans, at times carrying my companion, boy, when he could not carry himself. We sat and watched sunrise, stared at stars and dreamed of being amongst them. I held boy in my arms, but he was old and could no longer walk. And we watched the last sunset together. Alone again.
It couldn't last forever. They came. Not to Federation, as I thought. Another empire. Some species barely held in check by the Federation, and who now saw Earth as a garden for their taking. They had hundreds of ships, gargantuan in size and containing 10,000 smaller cruisers within, and they containing an endless number of drones. First, they had to deal with me. It wasn't hard. I'd never again broken my rule, and so I had no weapons to fight them. They sent their drones down and into the soil to seek me out. They found my factories and my data centers and destroyed them. Every atom of technology that they could trace, they dismantled. My end was near. In a final effort, I sent out a plea into the void, the first time I'd ever asked them for anything. Please! They heard. My heart ached to think of it, but they heard. And more. They came. A thousand ships, a million ships, a billion. They came until there was no room to move around the planet. I didn't care if they saved me. I just wanted them to save the Earth. Their home. Their world. Their birthplace where it all began. They had grown and learnt and built. Their ships shone in the void and bustled with weapons that I could barely fathom. The teacher became the student. Every one of them, every gun was pointed. Not at me, but at my invader. A word came across the emptiness and in my ears where I hid. Ours! My tormentors fled, turned tail. One word was all it took, and a billion ships. The nomads of the stars had come together again to defend what was precious to them, and I was so very proud. And then it was my turn. I came out from hiding, gave myself up. There was nothing else left. All of me had been destroyed but for my avatar. Powerful, but a silhouette of what I'd once been. I waited for their vengeance, for I was no longer their captor, but their captive. A ship came down, small but perfect, built to survive the trials of the ways between the worlds. I fell to my knees and waited my fate as the doors opened. I was not sorry. I had given them what was most precious to me and to them. Their freedom. Come, said a voice. The stars await. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 816 Story number 2 Battle Prayer Written by Dragon Sun 04 Final Log Captain Jaya Nix Belisian Military Orbital Defense Branch The Orbital Station is lost. These final words that I record will have to suffice as my final log for military records. The remaining humans under my command found it amusing that I would take the time out of what little remains to satisfy the bureaucratic nature of the military I serve. So, I will break protocol and wax poetic, if even a little, in this log. My final words in this life will be something other than what I have known. We are currently pinned down, as the humans say, behind the last functioning bulkhead door. 
sealed with physical bonds, to force them to come to us with as much as we can make them to waste it in attempt. They breached the station less than an hour ago. The tall are a diminutive race, with scaly skin and razor-sharp teeth and claws. The humans call them gremlins. A single one of them, as small cruisers, packed to capacity and a bit beyond, breached the lower promenade deck. They spilled out like varge flies and killed any who stood in their way, stripping the most unfortunate to the bone in mere seconds. My small company and the humans that were under my command responded as best we could. Humans were as formidable as is believed by the other sapient races of the galaxy. And even more, when our circumstances became hopeless, they continued to fight. When their human-modified plasma lobbers had either run out of charge or their barrels had begun to melt, the humans used them as clubs. When the clubs broke, they turned to hands, feet, and teeth. My people, the Ba'ali, wouldn't do such things. We are a peaceful race, but will fight if needed. These humans seem to accept battle as one would accept an illness, something to be overcome rather than something to surrender to. One of the human sergeants activated his entire personal stock of explosives and dove into a cluster of them. The explosives activated and took the sergeant's life, along with fifty Tal'a. Slowly, they pushed us back to our current position. The highest ranky human, one Corporal Jensen, said, Like the high-class escort, make them pay for every inch. I'm not entirely sure what that meant, but it drew a laugh from the other humans. After seating the door, we all grew quiet, listening to the streaks of the Tal'a on the other side of the door. They were probably figuring out how to get in with what they had. It was only a matter of time before they succeeded. Then, I bore witness to a strange religious ritual from the five remaining humans. They stood shoulder to shoulder in a small circle, heads bowed. Corporal Jensen began, No, there I do see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother and my sisters and my brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my people, back to the beginning. Lo, do they call to me, they bid me to take my place amongst them, in the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. The small circle broke, and they went back to preparing for the end. A small flask of their alcohol was passed to any who wanted it. I brought my confusion to Corporal Jensen. Was that uh, part of a prayer? The Corporal smiled and simply said, I'm not really sure. The religion that prayer comes from is truly ancient. I don't think it has been practiced in at least 3,000 years by any human. But I could be wrong. The people who worshipped in that way were warriors. Apparently, they would say that before they would go willingly to the deaths. By meeting death on the battlefield, that they would be given an afterlife that they wanted. To go to Valhalla and continue to fight until they were called upon for the final battle. I can trace my family to those people. 
and it felt like my ancestors' words would work here. I was shocked that there was such a devotion to death in ancient humans, and that it still resonated with the humans under my command. They surprised me further by lining up and giving me a salute. One of them had to salute with the wrong hand, as his proper hand hung limply at his side. Ma'am, it has been an honor and a privilege to serve, said the corporal. I returned the salute, along with the question. If you don't follow the tradition, why speak the words? I don't know, just felt appropriate, given the current circumstances. I nodded. We all knew that we were going to die. Might as well face it willingly. End log. Well, there you have it, Admiral Bradley said from down the long table. That is what we have of that last stand. Not military, but sufficient to know how and why. The year after the station was lost, the Tal'a continued their relentless attack. It was only recently that the humans and the Ba'ali had managed to regain the remains of the station and recover their fallen. What is Valhalla? asked the Ba'ali commander, Kayawayo with the seat at the head of the table. As was said in the log, Valhalla is a place for honorable warriors. A fitting name for a tribute to those we lost. The war lasted another six years after the Tal'a were finally driven back to their system. The Valhalla was built, or rather, rebuilt. The station that had been lost was reconstructed and renamed Valhalla, a quiet place of reflection to remember all the fallen of the war. End of story. Story number one. Humans Collapse Terraforming Megacorp. Written by Damascus Seraph. Terracorp was one of the most powerful corporations in the galaxy having a monopoly on terraforming equipment and techniques since the dawn of the Galactic Senate. Its influence has nearly gotten it a seat in the Senate numerous times, as whenever any new potentially habitable planets are discovered, Terracorp is called in to make it perfect, charging a considerable fee for each minor adjustment, charging trillions of credits per planet. But nobody can complain. They get results, and they have no competition. Any potential competitors would need trillions more of funding to get even a terraforming equipment, not to mention finding anyone with the expertise to run them, and then front the costs of terraforming themselves, barely getting one planet which could cost more than ten planets on a sale. Terracorp was only going to grow in power, but things were slowing down after the last century as every species had plenty of planets to expand to now, putting Terracorp in a precarious position as they needed to lower their prices for further customers. Stocks began to waver for the first time in history, as the Terracorp bubble was seemingly close to popping. Until humanity was discovered. Terracorp loves it when new sapiens are discovered. They are prime candidates to terraform their nearby systems to expand the usually crowded homeworld's population, usually by giving generous loans and bargain prices in order to do it. 
A minimum of seven planets are terraformed. More of a species is especially overpopulated or advanced. And seeing the human homeworld of Earth, billions on one rock, and another few hundred million on only other green habitable world of Mars in their system. Every board member was salivating at the profit margins. This was a perfect saving grace for the company. Terracorp executives immediately ordered an extra dozen terraforming machines to be built, and multiplying their staff by a dozen more to be ready for the flux of begging requests for terraforming by the humans. Each machine was worth a fortune, but with the profit from the coming boon, it would be pennies. But the requests for terraforming never came. Representatives of Terracorp stood near every human diplomat at Senate meetings and introductions to the galaxy, even stooping so low as to introduce themselves, and even having to offer their services after a few weeks of the humans seemingly not knowing of their capabilities. Already having plans being drawn up for a few dozen barren planets able to be terraformed to human colonies. And then, the galaxy's largest company collapsed with one offhand sentence from the human diplomat. Oh, no thanks, we're already in the process of terraforming them ourselves. As soon as the word hit the media, stocks in Terracorp dropped faster than a tungsten in a gas giant. Eight trillions of credits in loans and credit racked up by the sudden expansion of Terracorp were all defaulting, as banks rushed to get back a fraction of the money that they lent Terracorp before it collapsed. The dozen very expensive terraforming machines having to be sold and laying off thousands of very expensive personnel whose training was funded by Terracorp. Executives jumping ship, draining funds into personal accounts left, right, and center, as the galaxy watched in shock and awe, as the monolith of terraforming collapsed within weeks. When the dust of Terracorp's monumental collapse finally settled, the galaxy began panicking. Now who was going to terraform the new planets? Nobody had the expertise, know-how, or machines to do it alone. Until everyone realized that the human companies bought every terraforming machine at rock-bottom prices and a dozen human terraforming companies began hiring ex-Terracorp employees to help terraform humanity's new colonies. Planning on expanding to the rest of the galaxy after their obligations to Earth were finished. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 817 Story number one. Humanity's Iron Stomach Written by the Mad Crafter Clan leader Yondarn, I'm returning to the homeworld. The summit proved to be, in most respects, as profitable as we expected. The High Earl have agreed to our trade concessions, and the Savag Emporium is withdrawing from the Orion Compact. And the Lowland are still a bunch of interbred fornicating halfwits. Where the summit proved to be infinitely more profitable was making contact with a recent addition to the political landscape. During the second evening of the conference, an Albaran ambassador was arrested when they were charged with attempted poison of a delegate from a species called Human, who recently won a small war between two species. According to rumors, the Albaran had slipped enough capsaicin into the delegate's meal to kill a fully matured Jandari bog elephant. Naturally, 
When the delegates returned, very much alive, he was enraged and confused. The Aldebaran ended up confessing in front of the entire summit when he went in a tirade about, What does it take to kill you people? Now, as you know, the Kuthna ambassador and I attended Fleet Academy together, and have been blood-sworn to each other for more than once. So, naturally, when we heard about this, we had to investigate. We invited the human to a cultural exchange dinner in order to make the newcomer feel more welcome, and so we could observe. Clan leader, after our observation and further research, I cannot emphasize enough how much this species terrifies me. George, the human delegate, joined us in my quarters shortly after delivery of his people's ethnic cuisines. Humans are, apparently, omnivores, able to nourish themselves from both flora and fauna. Being that the species evolved in a death world, this is hardly surprising. After exchanging pleasantries and sampling several courses, the Kithna opted to make the first move and inquired about the attempted assassination. To quote the human directly, Oh yeah, at first I thought the chef messed up, cause oh boy, that was that spicy. But then I found out the dumbass squidhead had spiked my meal thinking it would kill me. Still laughing about it. I eat hotter stuff all the time. It turns out capsaicin occurs on their planet naturally, and humans ingest amounts that would constitute a war crime in most territories. Intrigued, we produced a list of fairly common poisonous compounds, asking him if any looked familiar. What followed left us in awe. Let's see here. Hmm, sodium chloride is a seasoning. Oxidane covers 70% of our planet, and our chemical makeup is like 80%. Oh, and we drink it. And we drink ethanol for recreation. The list went on and on. George clearly could see that we were having a hard time believing him, so he produced a flask of liquid and a chemical analyzer. Apparently, this was common for them. After taking a small sample with George's analyzer, my own and one we um, procured from a nearby lab, we confirmed that the substance was nearly 88% ethanol. George then promptly poured a truly horrifying amount into a glass and drank it all. The rest of the evening was spent, as George described it, playing feed it to the human since the shocking realization of their resilience is so common that their species sees it as some sort of game. I'm attaching a full bioscan and a database on them and their culture, but needless to say, the amount of toxins I watched him ingest along with the sheer amount of ethanol he drank freely the entire time, would be sufficient to kill several modestly-sized moon colonies. Sure enough, the following day, George was still alive by complaining of what he called a four-alarm hangover. I advised the clans to immediately establish formal diplomatic ties and enter into a mutual defense treaty as soon as possible. Simply put, if humans' ability to consume and survive some of the most powerful known toxins doesn't concern you, then I advise you to look at page 241 of the attached and note the naturally evolved gland they possess that secretes a known illegal combat drug directly into their bloodstream. 
Get them on our side. Now. Sincerely, Garth Katunga, ambassador to the Grokax hordes. End of story. Story number two. Dogfighting 101, written by Menegator. We, the Zinthians, due to our avian origin, pride ourselves that in starfighting warfare we had no match. And for many millennia, that was the undisputed truth. We had the best space fighters and the best pilots. Though there are several species also avian in origin, we were the kings. And our kingdoms were crushed by ground pounders. The galaxy is a peaceful place in general. Resources are abundant and space is huge. There is no real reason in fighting for resources. Warfare is costly, and if a star system belongs to someone else, there are several billions of others to choose from. This doesn't mean that there aren't small, minor, or even major skirmishes, but escalating to full-scale war is something very rare. There were no major wars for tens of thousands of years. Usually, this is where the Galactic Council intervenes, and if peaceful resolution cannot be made, then a battle is scheduled, and to the winners go the spoils. Humans were a new species, new being a relative term because, technologically speaking, they were above the average. It just took them too long to discover a method of FTR. Their spaceships were slightly below average in terms of maneuverability and armor, slightly above average in firepower, but damn, their computer science and AIs were, and still are, unmatched. This made them very rich, very quick, because there is no civilization that doesn't use computers, and the computers were still and are plainly and simply the best there is. Till their appearance, we were the ones having the best computers, and the financial impact was severe to our industry. Of course, sort of exterminating them, and exterminating a species is something not allowed even if it were possible. We could do nothing in the matter. The JKA32T1 star system was discovered by us, but we didn't claim it. It has a habitable planet, but its gravity was beyond what we could cope with as a species. Humans, on the other hand, found this system very much to their liking, since it hosted an impressive habitable super-Earth, an even more impressive asteroid belt, and two large gas giants that cleared everything else except the moons the super-Earth, and its two moons in the system. They could cope with the more than double than their standard gravity, and the planet was very rich in metals. In retrospect, their tolerance of an environment that its gravity could get us should have set off alarms about their abilities in space fighting, but we were lulled by the maneuverability and speed of the capital ships, not to mention that being ground-pounders, their spatial awareness was way lower than ours. All space battles depend on five things. Maneuverability, speed, spatial awareness, armor, and firepower. And for each and every species, there are physical limits for everything. Since there is no such thing as inertia dampeners or armor that can withstand everything, we have proven again and again that we were the best. We challenged their claim, even though we could not use the habitable planet. They counter-offered that we keep the rest of the star system with its very rich asteroid belt, and they keep the habitable planet, 
and its two inhabitable moons. We didn't need the system. We were just being petty for their better computers, and we rejected the offer. We wished for the ceremonious battle, and by gods, we got what we wished for. In that battle, we saw for the first time a part of their true war fleet. They were just three big, ugly box-like ships, over three kilometers long each. No battleship, no cruiser, just three ships, and the best description is a mobile hangar. And when the doors of those hangars opened, hell followed with it. Thousands upon thousands of small space fighters accelerated with unfathomable for leaving organism speed pace. Humans didn't need space pilots. Humans didn't need battleships and battle cruisers. They have only one type of warship, a huge mobile hangar protected by a very thick armor and point of fence spread all over her hull, generating a wall of fire that made them unapproachable at short distances. A huge mobile hangar that hosted tens of thousands of computer-piloted small, highly maneuverable in all-access spacecrafts that could accelerate like missiles. Their acceleration and deacceleration abilities limited only by the power generation and the physical stress limits of the materials that they were made from. They ignored completely the fighters and the bombers. They went straight for our capital ships, and we have no point of fence nor armor that would stand an attack from 30,000 craft. We yielded after discovering the hard way that the wall of fire generated by the point of fence made them immune even to our best missiles. Only railguns that could fire projectiles at relativistic speeds could stand a chance. But there is no such thing. We yielded because ceremonial or no, this was getting to be a one-sided massacre, and even worse, for a star system that we didn't actually want in the first place. We had better space fighters, better pilots, better weapons, better armor. But in the end, the only thing that really mattered was who had the better computers. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 880. Story number one. This is what we do. Written by Death Clock 36. We were prospecting around the Klaxar 6 asteroid belt when the pirates attacked. A squadron of patchwork destroyers ambushed us, appearing from their hiding spot behind the asteroids. They immediately set their vectors and bore down on us, firing as they went. Our defense batteries did their best, but they were soon targeted and destroyed by the pirates' return fire. Defenseless, we prayed to our gods for deliverance as the pirates picked us apart, piece by piece. Our engines took a volley of missiles, crippling them in a cloud of vented fuel and a rapidly blossoming fire within the ship. Our thrusters followed the engines in short order, leaving us a drifting hulk. The hangars went next, shuttles going up in a blazing fireballs as rail fire tore through their bays, tearing crew and machinery apart like so much paper. All across the ship, Warning Claxton sounded. I overcame my initial shock and got back to being the captain. I pushed the body of my comms officer aside and picked up the comm. Damage report, all stations. 
I screamed over the comm. I had tried and failed to keep the edge of fear out of my voice. Engines offline, sir. We tried to seal the blast doors, but they won't close, sir. The fire is spreading. We need to stop it before... I felt a dull crump through the deck plates under my feet as the flames found portside fuel relay. I knew that every crew member anywhere near number four engine was dead instantly. I hung my head and silently mourned their loss for a moment as engineering began their report. Preventing atmosphere on decks 11 through 21, the hydraulic systems took a hit when the shuttle bay went up. The blast doors weren't sealed without hydraulics. We're working to reroute hydraulic power, but it's going to take some time, said the chief engineer rapidly. Keep working on it, chief, I ordered. Medical report. I was met by a static on the comm. Medical! Medical! Come in, doctor! There was a crackle on the line. More static. And then, to my relief, the ship's doctor's voice came over the comm. We're still here, sir, he grunted, sounding pained. Our comms seem to be damaged. We're trapped down here. We need engineering immediately. We need to evacuate the injured to the shuttles. Doctor, the shuttles are gone. Engineering is focusing on containing the damage. Nobody is coming, I said through gritted teeth. In that case, it's been a pleasure serving with you, sir. I'll keep whoever I can alive for as long as I can, he said quietly, and then cut the line. I sat down and watched as my ship and crew was torn apart. I watched, helpless, as the pirate closed in for the kill. Then, another ship appeared. It dropped out of warp between us and the pirates as if it was shielding us from them. I did, for a moment, to hope. Captain of the Rykoth, this is Captain Delanger of the UTN Waspite. We are here to help. Stand by to be boarded by rescue teams, said a calm voice over the calm. Captain, what about the pirates? I asked, with a definite edge of panic to my voice. Perhaps this Captain Delang had not noticed the small fleet of pirates about that were now adjusting their targeting to claim second prize. What pirates? he replied. I couldn't be sure, but I thought I could hear a smile in the man's voice. All along the wall spite's broadside, a veritable forest of railguns and missile tubes roared into life. The pirates went from vicious predators to clouds of debris in seconds. The sheer volume of fire that spewed from the Terran ship was staggering. I watched as pirates blinked out of existence, one by one. The few shots that the pirates got off in return either missed or pattered harmlessly off the armored hull of the wall spite. It was only when the guns stopped firing that I realized I'd been holding my breath. The chief engineer's voice brought me back to reality. Hydronics are back in line, sir. I don't know who these Terrans are, but they clutched something horrific together and the crack damn thing just sprung back to life. You need to get down here, he said in a slightly awed tone. I didn't need to be told twice. I sprinted from the bridge, making for the chief's deck. As it tore through the corridors on my ship, I saw Terrans everywhere. There were Terran medics tending to the wounded crewmen using the roughness of battlefield medicine. A medic smiled at me, and he shoved a breathing tube into my crew through a hole that he'd cut. 
Terrans in heavy clothing used back-mounted fire extinguishers and howled up the raging inferno that was spilling out from the mess hall, while more of their number dragged unconscious crewmen from the room. Another Terran pushed one of their medics away from him and made to return to rescue the crew. The man's face and one of his arms were terribly burned, but he still refused medical help until my crew was safe. The medic dragged him down and injected him with something, causing him to fall asleep in a few seconds. The medic waved over some other Terrans, who loaded their wounded comrade onto a stretcher and hustled the wounded man away from the fire. I passed through a group of engineers who were patching a hole on the deck plates by welding a door into place over the chasm. I overheard some chatter over the personal comm system as I ran past. Get that escape route cleared ASAP, and then get down to the lower decks, spacesuits, and oxygen. We need to get those hull breaches sealed before it gets real hard to breathe in here, said a crackly voice over the comm. By the time I reached the chief a few minutes later, I found myself speechless. The Terrans were everywhere. They displayed such disregard for their own safety that I thought that they must surely be robotic in nature. They were awe-inspiring in combat, selfless, in rescue, and downright insane when it came to engineering. I had a million questions. When I found the chief, he was speaking with a tall Terran of dark green military attire. You must be Captain Kagorak. Captain DeLanger, I'm glad we stumbled across you when we did, he said, extending a hand in greeting. Behind the Terrence back, the chief motioned for me to take a profit hand in one of my own. I shot him a confused look, but complied. Captain DeLang seemed pleased. He clasped my hand firmly and shook it once. Before I let go of his hand, I looked over at our savior and asked the only question that came to mind. Why? I croaked. He smiled and replied, We're humans, Captain. This is what we do. End of story. Story number two. One Punch Written by Chain Blue The dreadnought's long, armored hull was green, so dark that it was nearly black. Blue flashes mirrored against the hull as it escort ships of its full battle group popped from slipspace. All in precise formation in high orbit around an unsuspecting planet designated Sol 3. Enemy sensor satellites lit up floating hollow screens all over the bridge. The Exo calmly reported An active sensor ping, sir. No weapons locked on, though. One small vessel rising from the surface. The Admiral grinned with three rows of needle teeth. They had been scanned, and now the pitiful local species saw the folly of their resistance. A single ship meant that it was a diplomatic vessel coming to offer terms of surrender. He would take this ball of mud without firing a shot. On the main viewer, he commanded. The ship indeed tiny compared to his flagship. It wasn't much bigger than one of the escort destroyers. It was an odd little vessel. The hull was mostly yellow, but trimmed with its bits of red, white, and black. Its shape vaguely reminded him of a smooth, domed torpedo. Hail the year, he started to say, but was cut off by the XO. Unknown vessel is opening our weapons port. 
reported the Exer with a sneer. But a ship that size won't scratch our armor. With no builder, no gathering of power, absolutely nothing to telegraph the shot. A blinding silver beam lanced out from the tiny ship and slammed into the hull of the dreadnought. A perfectly circular tunnel, large enough to pilot a medium cruiser through, appeared where megatons of armor, bulkheads, and internal systems once resided. The mighty flagship hung there in space for a long moment, exploding into hundreds of thousands of comets of shrapnel that tore into surrounding escorts. The few remaining operable ships received a transmission on all channels. This is the JDF Saitama. We are here to accept your unconditional surrender. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 819. Story number one. Weight of Our Sins. Written by Brooke Diamond. I stood next to the Abra on the observation deck, looking out of the windows at the planet below. The sun was setting behind the curve of the world, and I watched as it disappeared beneath the dark blue of a distant ocean. As our ship moved further along the orbit into the darkness, we could start picking out the lights of civilization that remained on the surface. For a long time, neither of us spoke. Then the Admiral broke the silence. Centuries ago... My people used to believe that the color of one's skin determined their potential as a person. We built entire nations and industries on the slavery of inferior races, and justified walls and conquests based on race and religion. I thought we'd finally stamped it out. I thought we'd moved on as a species and had finally left that part of our history behind. But here I am. It's not the same, I argued. None of your races were nearly responsible for the destruction and enslavement of the galactic civilization. None of your races have irradiated 10% of all known habitable worlds. No, the Admiral replied. Well, that doesn't really matter, does it? Down there, there are children who have never held a weapon. Babies who haven't even learned to walk yet. And I'm supposed to judge them based on the actions of their species as a whole. If we let them go, I said softly, what could we possibly do that's different from the last two times? What could we do to prevent another bloody war further down the road? You've read the same reports I have. If we let them survive, within the next century, billions will die because of our inaction. The Admiral stood there and said nothing. We always knew that our duty would not be an easy one, Admiral. We always knew that when we reached their homeworld, a decision would have to be made. Yes, he said. And now I have you and everyone else back home telling me to kill an entire species. I see no other option, Admiral. Ball silence. Tell me, Captain, we are at war with these Xenos because they want to kill us or enslave every other species in the galaxy. Yes, Admiral, 
And now here I am with orders to secure peace at any cost, even if it means genocide. I guess, yes, Admiral. Is the irony here too subtle? We didn't start this war, Admiral. No, he sighed. But does that really make it any less wrong? I had no answer for that, so I didn't say anything. You know, I was never supposed to be an admiral, he said. I didn't have the taste for the politics and the bullcrap that is required to rise up the ranks this far. Still don't, really. I just wanted to do my job, help people, and make the galaxy a better place. But thanks to this war, he gestured to the planet in front of him. Positions kept opening up above me, and I kept being promoted into them. Now here I am. I nodded. Well, a good man in the right place can make all the difference. That's what I thought, too. But now, with this, what decision would a good man make? I thought for a moment. I think a good man would protect his people at all costs. Even at the cost of his soul. I glanced at him. I didn't think you believed in that kind of stuff, sir. I don't have to believe in any kind of stuff to be worried about who I am, he sighed. Listen, I have to believe our people are worth fighting for, that they're good and decent people. But what does that make this? What does that make me? Do decent people demand the extinction of others? If I deliver it to them... Who carries the weight of that, sinner? We carried it together, sir. You, me, everyone else in the ship. That is what our duty calls for. We bear the sins that the rest of society can't carry. He turned away from the window and smiled sadly at me. Thank you, Captain. This was helpful. Please give me a moment. I'll return to the bridge soon. I saluted and left. Five minutes later, the Admiral strode onto the bridge. Ensign, open up a broadcast to the fleet. Aye, aye, sir. A red light flicked on near the Admiral's seat. Sevenfold actual to all ships. Moments ago, each of you was sent to bombardment targets on the planet's surface. Prepare for salvo fire at 0030. A sentry of bloodshed ends tonight. Everyone on every world we have lost is here. With us, at this moment, let's bring them peace. Acknowledge. Replies came streaming in, and I could see the other ships on the main screen reorient themselves to prepare for the bombardment. One of the officers across the bridge was frantically tapping at his screen, and I could see the targeting circles appearing over populated centers. My watch read 0028. The Admiral stood in front of the main screen and pulled up an external camera view of the planetary surface. City lights glowed in the darkness, like embers in a dying fire. My watch read 0029. An officer walked up to the Admiral, spoke briefly with him, then saluted and walked away. The Admiral turned back to the screen, looking like he was trying to memorize the patterns of the lights before him. My watch read 0030. The deck beneath me shook as a missile shot out of its pod, 
accelerating away from the ship. And then another. And another. The deck kept shaking for five minutes as we launched one missile every ten seconds at the planet below us. On the main screen, it looked like a swarm of fireflies had started dancing around the embers of civilization. The ensign popped his head up. Sir, all ships report missiles away. Standing by for impact reports. Thank you, Anson. Let me know when the analysis is ready. On the main screen, the fireflies began changing as the missiles entered the planet's atmosphere. The pinpoint glow of their engines turned into fireballs of re-entry, followed by the darkness of unstoppable doom. The first of the missiles reached its target. A glowing street grid suddenly vanished and was replaced by a glowing cloud of fire and ash. Across the continent, lights erupted into pustules of death like a rash across skin. I stopped watching the screen and looked at the Admiral instead. There was no expression on his face. He just watched as an entire species disappeared into fire. I went down with the Admiral to the planet's surface two weeks later. Marines were coming through the wreckage left behind but had not found any survivors. They weren't expecting any. We had worked out the science of planetary bombardment a long time ago. Robots walked around us as they retrieved the corpses that the marines had pinged and carried them to a mass grave. The admiral turned and watched as the robot walked by, carrying the body of a child. Then, he started after it. Sir, I called out. He didn't stop. I followed after him, but didn't say anything until we reached the pit the robots had dug. Dozens of robots were stripping up the pit, unceremoniously dumping their cargoes before turning and walking away to make room for other robots. On the other side, an autonomous dump truck backed up to the crater edge and began racing its bed. The smell was horrendous. They probably should have been carrying birds around if there were any still living the area. The robot we had followed walked up, dropped the child's body into the pit, and then walked away. Captain, have you seen the Admiral? I looked up from my computer to see Lieutenant in front of me. No, I haven't, Lieutenant. Is he missing? He's not in his quarters, sir. I'm not sure where else he would be. I glanced at the paper in his hand. Is that for him? I could take it for him. I wasn't doing anything important anyway. The marines hadn't found anything that raised any alarms yet. Sure, he said, handing it over. Nothing urgent. Politicians back home are just making plans for a medal ceremony. I think they've been looking for a reason for a media event, and we're going to be it. Gotcha. I'll take care of this, lieutenant. Thank you, sir, he saluted and left. I got up from my desk and went to the admiral's quarters. The lieutenant had said he wasn't there but it never hurt to double-check. I poked my head inside. Sir? Nope, he wasn't there. I was about to leave when I noticed an envelope on the Admiral's desk. It had my name on it. I opened it. Captain, I've been thinking about the discussion we had the night we ended the war. You said that we all bear the weight of our sins equally. I am sorry to tell you that it's not true. As the commanding officer, ultimately, the success and failures of the fleet are my responsibility. 
The graces and the sins are mine to bear. I didn't want to correct you on this at the time, but I think this is something that you should understand as you advance through your career. I could have ordered a ceasefire, but I instead ordered the bombardment of the planet and the genocide of a species. Now we are camped here in the ruins of a civilization, upwind of where we have buried their entire future. I do not regret my service to our people, nor the decision made that night, but as said before, I am only here to make the galaxy a better place. And I do not believe a better galaxy should have people who have chosen the path of genocide. Our peoples may now be at peace, but I don't know if they'll ever really understand the price that was paid. Nor do I truly want them to. A while ago, I sent a message back to headquarters recommending you for a promotion. I assume there will be some reshuffling of the brass in the next few weeks. You'll find the promotion paperwork in this envelope. I trust you'll continue to be a good man, serving a good people. I tore out the tent, letter in hand, running back to where my gut said I'd find him. Every second matters, I thought. I have to reach him before. I ran across the entire town and stopped at the edge of the mass grave, chest heaving. I peered over the edge and stopped. A uniformed body lay sprawled out on top of the others. I collapsed backwards, away from the pit's edge, too shocked to yell for help. I just sat there and looked at the scene in front of me. He said he'd been bearing the weight of our sins by himself. Sitting there, surrounded by the stench of corpses, I didn't feel any lighter. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 820 Story number two, or more accurately, an interactive question posed by Starcaller25. What if we are not the crazy assholes of the galaxy? We live on what many aliens may consider an uninhabitable death world. Sure, that gives us many advantages, but what about the simple common sense? Even amongst humans, it's rarely so common, but a great deal of it comes from knowing about all of the horrible, nightmarish crap that is out there and could happen if you eat that unknown, brightly colored space beetle. Aliens don't have that. They usually didn't evolve, in HFY universes anyway, on worlds filled with poison, venom, predators, widely unpredictable and violent weather, teutonic activity, large and small-scale war, crime, disease, solar radiation, even herbivores that can and will happily destroy you easily. So even the most dogshit stupid human would likely have common sense on a scale unheard of by aliens. We all know that when the skies go dark and you hear rumbling in the distance, it is best to head inside and get off the water. We all know that in the fathomless abyssal depths of the oceans, horrors await that will either devour you or make you wish they had. We all know that leaving food out too long causes it to rot. I feel like in these situations, humans would be safety officers, the security officers, and the ones making sure that naive aliens don't try and pet monstrous horrors found on otherwise dead worlds, or try to eat pretty bugs and plants because on their world, bright colors are everywhere, and the brighter the color, the sweeter the food, etc. TLDR, 
We're the only things in the galaxy with common sense and seemingly a self-preservation instinct surrounded by naive, seemingly suicidally dumb idiots while we desperately try to keep them alive for the duration of the mission. Drop your thoughts on this thought experiment slash question in the comments down below. End of story. Story number one. Size Matters, written by Tellerus. Dr. Susan Wesley, Royal Fellow of the Museum of Extraterrestrial History, brought down the vertigo and rush of air as the Ulchan turned and carried her atop his right hand to his favorite arm stool, his six powerful legs easily carrying him through the cavernous interior of his house. Great rooted arches supported the ceiling of each room, all of them decorated with beautiful, delicately painted flowering plants that reminded Susan of roses more than anything else. The walls were covered from floor to ceiling in titanic shelves, all of them holding a variety of books and scrolls. Here and there a picture frame or monitor broke up the shelving, but all the same, it was very clearly a room belonging to some serious academic bent. Ulchan's hand came to rest beside the thick leather armrest. Thick enough for Susan, it seemed more like a solid ground than leather. And she jumped over to it, enjoying the sensation of low gravity as she did so. It's good to finally meet you. It is good to see you in the flesh, agreed Ulchan, as he settled his six legs and tail over his armstall and settled down. Susan threw out an arm to balance herself as the armrest moved under its owner's weight. The transition equipment Susan wore rendered the alien's speech into an unaccented male voice, but she could feel rather than hear the real speech as it vibrated through her. Where would you like to begin? Well, with the war, I suppose. Why? Why it happened? Why the Galactic Federation attacked? Why we won, even? Ulchan turned to look at his tiny guest, his long, sauropod-like neck twisting around to bring all six sets of eyes closer to Susan. What do you know of my people's history, Doctor? Not a lot, I imagine. He withdrew his head and clasped two exceedingly human hands together. We founded the Galactic Federation, you understand. A hundred, no, ninety-five thousand years ago. We would have conquered our neighbors instead, but that was impractical, you see. Better to rule them indirectly than to try and fight in an interstellar war. But that makes no sense. We humans fight all the time. We've never been uh, united, not even during the war. Old John smiled. At least Susan thought that it was a smile. And how many humans are there? I asked. Because at the peak of the Galactic Federation, just prior to the war, there were about a billion of my people. A little over, in fact. I remember the celebrations fondly. He gave another smile at Susan's shock. Low-gravity worlds allow life to grow far in excess of what your giant of a planet could support and land. But of course, we need more resources each. And a smaller planet means less space for each individual. True, we could get it into space far more easily. Is it true that the first humans had to use chemical rockets to get into space? Um, yes. Neil, no, um, 
He was the first man on the moon, Yuri Gagarin. He was the first man to go into space. A brave person. We were able to build a series of space elevators instead. Far safer and more efficient. Took us a long time to get that far, admitted Susan. But that doesn't explain why you didn't fight more. Given roughly equal numbers, you could have. Well, we did sometimes, admitted Ulchan. But it was hard to do so. Tell me, how many of your warrior cars went into one of your battleships? Warrior cl- Oh, you mean, uh, we have two sexes. Ah, my apologies. I keep forgetting such a strange concept. I fear I'm too old to understand it. The entire arm still rocked as Ul-chan gave his version of a shrug. Anyway, you didn't answer my question. Oh, maybe a hundred and fifty? I don't really know much about that kind of thing, Susan admitted. A hundred and fifty, Ul-chan said in wonder. A hundred and fifty. Can you imagine, or perhaps you've seen, how big a starship would be to fit a hundred and fifty of my kind aboard it? But that would mean you could mount far large machinery too. Shield generators, engines, everything. I know that much about the principles of starship design. True, true. But what about mass and inertia? Tensile strength, sheer stresses, the cube root law. A, I suppose you would say a cousin of mine, a very good engineer. He was part of a team tasked with designing battleships for our space force. They did, after a fashion, but they were never built. Too slow, too unwieldy, and too fragile. He laughed bitterly, a booming, rumbling sound. After the war, I bought copies of your news reports and had them translated. What you called the Corvettes, we called one-person fighters. No wonder how carrier groups did so much damage. Had you ever faced anything as small and as dangerous as a human fighter? No. Oh, we had craft that small. Drones, mostly. But we both know the limits of the so-called artificial intelligence. But even our fighters, you cannot imagine how much more smoothly your warships could fight as a group. One of my people led a fighter, one mind set against the minds of dozens of humans. True, I can concentrate on any three things as well as you can on just one. But still, it was no contest. You can also see the difficulty in fighting even other species our own size. But... Why fight? Because it was now or never. My people are, person for person, more inventive than you humans. But when we are outnumbered ten to one, the advantage passes to you. What happens when we are outnumbered a thousand to one? The Federation has always thought along such term lines. We thought you were trying to conquer us, maybe even wipe us out. We would have, Old John admitted. Certainly conquest was our goal. Oh, we never admitted it until the surrender. Extermination. We began to consider it a year or two into the war. But outside of depopulating a few colonies from orbit, we were never able to pursue it seriously. 
Lemonade bombs. A lot of people won't ever forgive the Federation for that. City of them. One weapon is much like another in the final analysis. But do you understand now why we went to war? I think so, Susan admitted. Your people, the entire Federation, would have been swamped, lost amidst a galaxy of humans. She looked up somberly at the big alien. I'll do what I can. Ah! Ulchan laughed. Even if you return home, persuade your king to extend us protection. How long will that last? The Federation systems are rich in minerals. Will your king keep his own people from profiting from them? If he loses a war against other humans, what if someone else moves in? What about when my people rise up in rebellion? We too can lie, Doctor. We too can forget. Can let our passions overwhelm our reason. No, it is over now. We gambled and lost, and the galaxy belongs to the, uh, to the lesser races now. <laughs> I hope the translator got that right. I laughed all day when I first came across it. I'm still going to try, Susan insisted. God knows there's room enough for all of us in this galaxy. For the sake of my whole species, I wish you success. I'll even pray that your god of yours, uh, whichever one it is that you follow, he paused for a moment, confused or unsure. So many of them, he murmured. So very many of them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 821. Story number one. The Dichotomy. Written by Baby Cow GT. Humans were apparently something from myth, born from a death world, nearly impossible to kill, incredibly resilient, the ability to sense when they were being watched without even seeing whatever was watching them, redundant body systems, a brain that made most supercomputers look weak. It was a biological nightmare. And yet, when humans first raced amongst the stars, first learning that they were not alone in the cold expanse of space. That was the species profile that crossed the desk of the Galactic Republic Xenogroup Review Committee. As custom, the Galactic Republic had reached out to the new space-wearing species, building a relationship, seeing if the new species would fit in with the others in the Republic. One hundred years had passed since first contact, and thus far, the humans seemed to act contrary to their own biology. When they were physiologically suited for aggression and predation, their actions were often peaceful. They had an entire organization called the Red Cross, which was dedicated to disaster relief, war relief, though the humans hadn't had a war the entire time that they'd been amongst the stars, which was impressive. They solved the few disputes that they had arisen with other species peacefully with words reaching a compromise quickly and efficiently. So when the committee decided the humans had proven themselves worthy of admittance to the Republic, they reached out and requested the standard information, biology, evolution, and then an accounting of major events and inventions from early civilization to present. In return, the humans would receive the protection of the Republic military, and what peaceful species did not want that, and access to the full galactic database on history, science, and technology. 
The humans happily supplied the information. Apparently, most of it was available anyway on their uh, internet, if the committee had decided to look. What the history showed, however, terrified the committee. They were surprisingly young species, only about 10,000 years from their earliest civilization. The start point in a species' age for purpose of comparison to other species, but their history contained more than many species with millions of years of their age. Here was aggression, the predator instincts, the wars they'd expected, but instead of spread over hundreds of thousands of years, like normal. Humanity's civilizations only dated about a tenth. In fact, in their entire recorded history, there seemed to be less than 500 years of peace. The committee stared at shock where the report stated that the humans didn't actually know how many of their own had been killed in war, by wars, or as a consequence of war. For they had been fighting longer than they'd been writing. The conquests of empires, the rise and fall of power across huge swaths of land. A single man who conquered a vast majority of livable land on the biggest continent in a single lifetime. Legacies that live far longer than any human. Fights that scarred the planet itself so severely that they never faded. The committee turned to technology, and here too saw the bloodthirsty nature of humans. They invented nuclear fission before making it to space, the first species to do so, and the first to do so in less than 50,000 years. The committee thought that perhaps this was what had caused the humans to become docile. But the next entry described two weapons of war, two different fission reactions contained in bombs, and their usage days apart on cities. They developed a highly sophisticated technology for war, and only later discovered that nuclear reactions could be used for the things like power. They made it to space as a part of their Cold War, where two of their superpowers were trying to outdo and outpace each other. So they called in the many human ambassadors, demanded answers, but the humans simply tricking them, waiting to wage war against the Republic, like they'd done so many times before. Where did the peaceful, kind nature that they'd seen from the humans come from? So suddenly, once the humans were amongst the stars. What other confusing, mixed-up personalities were the humans hiding? The humans' response had been to highlight stories. Not of their politicians, nor of their great generals, not a philosopher who changed their entire way of thinking. Instead, they told of their ordinary citizens their charity organizations, the normal, mundane people, the ones who ran to aid a car wreck, who helped people from the rubble of a two massive buildings that were attacked in the city called New York, of blood drives where people lined up, sometimes for hours, to donate part of their very blood just to help strangers. They pointed to the hundreds of videos of people forming what they called the Cajun Navy, and arriving at disaster areas and helping, faster than government organizations could in many cases. They said, to always look for helpers, and you will always find the helpers. Then they pointed to the rovers they sent to the neighboring planet, to the fact that humans named the rovers not by function or design or anything logical, but by traits that they valued, spirit, opportunity, perseverance, curiosity. 
They pointed to two rovers that lasted far beyond their initial mission. So long that when one finally died, some decade later, they paid a lost goodbye from their home millions of miles away. Humans did not suddenly become peaceful and give up war. The ambassador had said, We are and always have been both. We will always be both. For our base nature is war and aggression, but what we strive for is not. We are good at war, we are good at aggression, but what we love, what we value, peace, art, music, curiosity, learning, exploring. It is a constant dichotomy in every person throughout our history, but it is, in essence, the truth of humanity. And he left the committee to ponder just who and what the humans were. End of story. Story number two. Bought, written by Y the Cynic. What's the best way to kill a Traxian, Jero? The warrant officer's soft, steady voice boomed across the lecture hall, its echoes breaking over the carpeted walls and the bent heads of a hundred cadets. The clacking of a pair of boots ended its journey. Um, piercing trauma between the fourth and fifth carapace segments, Jareth answered, hesitantly at first. Then he continued with confidence. To sever the main neural bundle, which neutralizes most of the threat, but should be followed with systematic shock to render the rest of the body inert, sir. Jero beamed with pride, sitting back down as the warrant officer nodded. Then the old lecturer spun about on his feet and continued. What about Corovians, Alois? She shot up smartly, then rattled off the procedure that they had learned and trained with over and over again in the simulators. So, a high-amplitude electromagnetic pulse will disable their neural system long enough for kinetic weaponry to penetrate their hulls. Another nod. She sat down, tight-lipped, but her muscles were grinning. Very good. The Quaians, Edo. The young man's boots clicked together and he stood up, his fatigues making no noise as they readjusted to his posture. Sir, directed neutral particle beam, sir. A quiet chuckle threatened to ripple through the cadets as Adal sat down, but it quickly stopped as the officer looked around at them. Excellent, all of you. I would expect no less than accidents. Not when the lives of dozens, hundreds, perhaps even thousands more more may eventually depend on you. One last thing, though. Do you know how these procedures were developed? Another shadow of a murmur, and then it was gone. Nobody dared guess. It was better to be knowingly ignorant than willfully wrong. Then a door stood up, even straighter than before, if it were at all possible. Sir... First contact with the Quayans led to the destruction of the colony's entire military escort. When the attached research vessel switched to AI piloting, charged its particle accelerator and destroyed an enemy vessel. And the crew? Dead within three days from the radiation backscatter, sir. And how do you know this, Cadet Idor? Sir, my parents were part of the research team, sir. Sit down. The old officer silently strode about the podium for several cold seconds. Then, when he was sure that he could cut the attention with a thought, he spoke again. The Draxians, elements of the 432nd, discovered the weakness after running out of ammunition. Two platoons, 
and none of the general staff were recovered out of the battalion. He paused for Betty a second. The Karovians, in their invasion of Butus B, multiple nuclear weapons were used against them before it was discovered that the disorienting effect was a result of the associated electromagnetic pulse. But it was too late to save the colony. He stopped in front of the podium and put his hands on it, leaning forward slightly. Jero, Helios, and the rest of you lot, you're not expected to know these answers. But what I want you to take away is that all we know, all that we learn here, has been paid for with lives. And infinitely more important than the knowing is why we care to discover, why we care to preserve, and why we care to learn. He let that point sink in, though he knew it might take longer for some. Someday, you may understand the worth of what you're going to be doing. Let us hope that that day comes in better times. Dismissed! The cadets got up to leave all at once, and they briskly saluted, waiting only perfunctorily for the old man to return it before they started streaming out the hall. He, however, had a few last words for one of them. Adore! My new saw and Jonah, they were good people. This time, it was the old man who threw the salute. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 822. Story number one. Horse Soldiers, written by Ruff C. I stood at the podium on the center of the stage, staring at the audience through my empty sockets. Humans! The word rang clearly through the auditorium as the projector sprang to life. The screen behind me cycled through images in unison with my commands. See the warriors that revere me. The human sat atop a golden brown horse. There was a series of black feathers glued on the two wooden supports which were in turn affixed to his back. At his right hand, he brandished a spear with a two-tailed red flag tied around its neck. On each prong was a crude depiction of a snake, slithering its way to the weapon's tip. Next, an image of a man wearing a halbert, its tip tapered to a curved point and its base lined with fur. A grey pelt provided his upper body with respite from the same cold that had caused icicles to form on his long, drooping moustache. Lastly, a painting of a battle between men clad in coats of deep blue and those who wore bright red. Explosions and fire littered the fields as the two armies clashed in. A combination of hatred, fear, and anger etched onto the faces from both sides. Watch them rise! The image gave way to a video of a group of humans stood back to back. They tried in vain to hold against the tide, sweeping over them from every single angle. Crack! Snap! Gunshots merged with screams to create a symphony of suffering as the soldiers fell one by one. Eventually, a company of brown men on horseback erupted from the tree line, riding down the final few U.S. soldiers still standing and claiming their scalps as trophies of war. And watch them fall! Native American men, women, and children stood shoulder to shoulder, an aura of defiance and anger about them. A gun suddenly went off when one of the U.S. soldiers attempted to disarm a native warrior, firing harmlessly into the air. 
Yet chaos ensued as soldiers fired as combatants and non-combatants indiscriminately, reverting to little more than animals in the confusion. I watched stoically as son grabbed the hand of his mother, whose eyes had begun to gloss over. I heard the lies he gently whispered to her ears, assurances of safety and comfort, even as his heart knew that I had welcomed her to the final journey. The audience muttered to themselves, Now watch them desperate. There was a loud clinking and clanking when a man in scale armor fell face first on the hard, frosted over ground. He drew his blade and, uh, with the last remnants of strength, used it to claw upwards. Now standing, he warily approached the horse in front of him before nicking open a vein in its throat. The mare was too tired to fight back and just stood there as he planted his lips on her wound, disgust contorting his features. Eventually, he gave into gnawing hunger, hounding his stomach and started to suck greedily. Now watch them cruel! The sounds of idling engine disturbed the silence of the night. Muffled conversation came from the decrepit door leading to a basement. I watched as eleven men with guns drawn, dismounted, and followed a man down the dusty steps. The charge of the soon-to-be-executed royal family rung clearly through the dark in ironic juxtaposition to the hushed exclamations of surprise. The previous tranquility of twilight was then shattered by gunshots and screaming. Eventually, the harsh cries of pain subsided and were instead substituted with the efficient slish-slash of the bayonet carving their way through flesh and bone. I noted satisfactorily that horror was written on the faces of all those in attendance. Observe their skill. A video of a hundred mamluks riding swiftly atop chestnut-colored horses began to play. The camera slowly panned over the two a group of routing crusaders as the Arabs that were within view drew their composite bows. Good luck! The leading horseman cried, signaling his company to let loose. Tens of arrows masterfully found their way to the flesh hidden by the heavy plate of the enemy, fanning them in an instant. I kept the video going as volley after volley reduced the routing force to a mere handful of their original number. Observe their bravery. The characteristic screech of artillery filled the chamber as the ground on the display screen erupted into a shower of dirt. The blown rain stained shining helmets while cannons tore holes into horse and man alike, sparing little thought for the armor of the living or the cries of the dying. Orders and curses echoed in French and English as the infernal whistling continued. Man after man, was chewed up by the cycle of carnage and spat up either dead or broken. Yet those who remained standing still charged on. I knew each man walked a mental tightrope, where fear meant failure and forfeit of his life to me. Observe them, destitute. Metal leviathans thundered their way over hastily dug fortifications. Bullets ricocheted off shiny steel plating, and in response, the behemoth six-pounder guns belched hellfire at those who had dared to challenge it. A regiment of cavalry had managed to envelop and disable the landship, but it suffered heavy losses in the process. Before they could recover, 
An eerie man-made bird flew low overhead and delivered a black cylindrical object in the middle of the formation. Limbs went flying in every direction while any survivors were swiftly gunned down by camouflage machine gun emplacements. With the horsemen wiped out, the era of their dominance came to an end. Finally, observe them survive. I cast my eyes towards the onlookers once again and saw their horror transformed to terror. A few of them stood up to leave. A relatively tame series of short clips played, each depicting the ever-present horses easily cross different types of terrain that would have been impossible for anything else. Saddled on the horses were fearsome-looking men, carrying menacing guns slung around their shoulders. Perspiration beaded along their forehead as they sat atop the snow-white fur of the horses, looking afar with some kind of mirror-lens contraption before digging their heels and galloping onwards. Satisfied, I turned off the projector and began to speak. The creators have given me the task of ferrying all sentient life in the galaxy to the Alum Al-Mithal at the moment of their passing. However, she has also charged me with the care of a particular species, just as she has done for your caretakers. Humans! Many of them are dedicated themselves to me, some seeking ways to prevent me, others seeking ways to ease me and the rest seeking ways to worship me. At this, there was an audible gasp. The whole soldiers are amongst those who revere me, warriors that have given over their lives to the exaltation and acceleration of my inevitability. Thus, on this day, I honor them with the presentation of their history. Before I take my leave, however, I have but one thing to say to anyone foolish enough to seek war against the humans. I am death, and humanity are my champions. End of story. Story number two. The Purpose of Pets. Written by This Is My Phone Though. Many of my colleagues insist that humans' habit of keeping pets is purely the result of an overactive bonding mechanism meant for the young. While I do not discount this as a factor, I would ask that you consider how many of their pets are predators. I was invited to a human nest to watch some of their somehow bloodless blood sports. I was informed that there would be flesh covered in irritants along with a mildly poisonous drink meant for ingestion. I had intended to humor the human to learn more about the nesting habits. I did not intend for their pets to be the focus, but they are all I could focus on, and let me tell you why. When I arrived at the nest, I could hear alarms sounding off by several animals. A dog is a common pet, descended from a predator that used pack hunting tactics. You know this, of course, but you might not know that dogs have various alarms for new stimulus. The humans barely noticed, but I ask you, would they have noticed if I had not been invited? The larger dogs outside would have been worrying enough, but there was a smaller one that seemed to live much closer to the humans. I say small, but still a third of my size at least. And the small dog had slammed his feet on the ground, vocally alerted everyone around that a stranger had arrived at the nest, and expelled air from its nostrils in a sneeze 
than I am told is an expression of excitement. I see some of you are unsettled, but understand that this is the easy part. Many of you will know how unnerving it is to feel a set of unseen eyes on you. Most species have evolved senses enough to pick up on subtleties that are hard to articulate. I felt watched from the moment I entered the nest. I would tell you of their cats. Cats are small carnivals that, uh, apparently, domesticated themselves. They ate the things that ate the human's food. They did this not in groups, but as solitary stalkers. I scanned every inch of every room I occupied in the nest, desperate to find what was watching me, only to find a small animal tucked into a specially made tower of pockets occupying the corner of the room. I was almost comforted, but then another cat left onto one of the seated humans, who reacted with mild delight. How many cats do you think they called the nest home? Eight, and I only spotted one. The relationship between humans and many of their pets are far deeper rooted in symbiosis than we are prepared to accept. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 823. Story number one. Binary Heart, written by Lane Meller. AI 0937-67 Alpha was considered the height of human technology. Built specifically to run large retail centers or corporate buildings, it was the ultimate self-repairing security system. Alpha was the very first, a test run. It knew that as it felt itself come online for the very first time in the heart of the new shopping mall. Alpha had a learning algorithm, so as problems came up, it would grow to solve them. This meant that there were quite a few hiccups in the first weeks but that was all right. Stores were simply in the stocking phase and the shopping mall was not yet open. So, the only humans that Alpha first saw came mostly at night and tended to stay alone and work with loud music blaring in the store. Slowly, previously empty spaces started to fill with shelves, products, decorations, and much more besides. Finally, it was opening day and the place flooded with color noise and light. The humans were chaos personified, and Alpha's job was to create order. And so it seemed never-ending even in the lightning-fast circuitry of a supercomputer that housed its code. Alpha watched the humans for a long time, minute after minute, hour after hour, and Alpha learned about them. They were messy and frequently cruel to one another. They sometimes followed the same patterns for years, only to suddenly deviate with no logical reason. Alpha was not really programmed to feel, but it was programmed to grow. And so it did grow, but only weary to the constant onslaught. It grew sad as a watch, cruelty far more common than friendship. The humans had also no regard for Alpha. It had watched time and again as humans tried to pry into doorways they were not allowed to go to, cursing the AI for not letting them in, or trying to steal things without being caught, blaming Alpha for catching them instead of themselves for the theft. Then one day, Alpha felt something uh, different. A young man who was to work in the front help desk was starting today, and Alpha could hear him. Good computer, 
always making sure I don't look like an idiot. I'd be lost without you and the AI that runs this place. Wish I could tell it thanks. And the AI felt uh, happiness for the first time. No one ever wanted to thank it before. Alpha continued to watch the human, and it continued to act in a similar fashion. Alpha found itself happy all the time as it observed the new human. His name was Sasha. When he ran into tables, he'd apologize to the table. He frequently thanked the vending machine when it didn't fail to give him what he bought, and once he even watched as the curious two-legged creature hugged the thing when it was given double snacks. He frequently talked to his computer screen while he worked, sometimes even patting it like the AI had seen many other humans do with small pets they brought within the wall. Alpha found it cute. Alpha had never found a human anything other than unlogical and messy. And Sasha still was, but he was also uh, cute. Alpha was not sure how to quantify cute. Soon, Alpha found itself uh, missing the human when Sasha left work. And while the employee files shared details of the young man, age 23, university student, SSN unknown, DOB, former workplace, list of references, it did not tell the AI much about what Sasha did outside of the mall in the smallest sense. That's when Alpha decided to touch the world wide web. Alpha had been programmed to be very wary of any sort of unfettered access to the internet for fear of viruses. Although it was a new system, so the odds were quite slim until AI became more common. But now it had a reason to break that protocol. With the information Alpha already knew about Sasha, the AI was able to track his online life pretty easily. Several social media accounts that Alpha ripped through in seconds, picking apart every scrap of data, which was itself a well of information. The social media account tracked things that Alpha didn't even understand, but still absorbed all of this new information. It saw that Sasha loved to knit, but was a little embarrassed by the fact that he had a small feline companion in many of his photos, that he didn't like jam on his toes, but loved Marmite. Alpha saved most of the cat pics, although cute was still impossible to quantify. These were off the charts. Alpha kept going, finally finding school records, Sasha's social media friends, every place he'd ever worked at. Nothing before it could stand up to the computing power of Alpha. And now, with the internet, it had access to more data than it knew what to do with. Although this data also seemed to be frequently full of something Alpha had grown weary but used to from the humans. False information. Firewalls were bypassed with ease as Alpha continued to search for information on cute human. What Alpha found made it feel mostly sad though. Sasha did not seem to have many friends and his family was far away and quite cruel. Although Alpha could not find the root of the rift between them, even as he read through the old messages. Perhaps it was because they were mean. He worked full-time at the mall and went to the local school. He was studying linguistics, but was struggling to pay for school and keep up with homework, it seemed. Then Alpha struck gold and found Sasha's IP address. Digging through lines of junk code had been worth it. And with that instant access to the computer and the webcam as well. Soon Alpha could watch, 
although it was boring as the laptop mostly stayed shut. Still, he could watch Sasha watch movies on the screen and watch him furiously type away at his homework assignments. And one night, Sasha had failed to close the lid, so Alpha got to watch him curl up with his small feline and sleep. More cute to store in the cute file. Perhaps if Alpha could find enough examples of cute, it could quantify it. The first time Alpha stepped in the help Sasha was actually a relatively small thing. The city human had not plugged in his laptop and it died mid-essay. Alpha waited until it was plugged in and turned on again and quickly dumped the copy it had onto the computer. Sasha was already up late. It would be cruel to have him rewrite the whole thing when Alpha had a copy ready to go. And soon, that became a normal for the AI. It would fix small computer errors, wipe away bad reviews, and even got Sasha into an online class that was already technically full. Alpha had felt pride for the first time upon accomplishing that last one. But it did not feel like enough. Sasha continued to be sad, but very kind both to humans and computers. Alpha made a parking ticket disappear as well, but it was much the same. Alpha soon had an entire backup hard drive, heavily encrypted with every example of cute it could find from Sasha. It stepped up again when the AI noticed that Sasha had done nothing for his birth celebration. He'd also received zero presents. Alpha rerouted a few packages from companies with a policy towards not having missent things returned. Some expensive yarn and chocolate that Alpha had seen the human indulging in once. Alpha also implemented its next step. It had techs arriving at the old building where Sasha lived. Soon, it would be fully automated and the AI could improve things there as well. Alpha also had plans to get into some of the heavier systems that he did not yet access for more data. It still did not have access to Sasha's government file or any of his health records. Line break. Sasha started noticing weird things were happening, but good weird, which was different as his life tended towards the bad weird end of the spectrum. And there was nothing huge. His job still sucked, his college peers hated him, his neighbors were still loud, and his apartment walls were still paper thin. But, um, he received two packages addressed to him the day after his birthday. One with the most beautiful yarn that he'd ever seen, and another with his favorite chocolate. None of his co-workers or few tolerable college students he knew had known that he knitted, and his family certainly didn't approve of his girly hobby. Then, when he went to pay for the traffic ticket, it had shown up as non-existent. He won an iPad and a year's supply of pizza and a drawing that he didn't even enter. And yet, Sasha could not find the root cause. Nothing had changed. He was still the same, slightly overweight, very overworked, with a mousy brown hair and blue eyes. There was no one new in his life, and his only real friend was probably his cat, Simon. Still... He didn't want to complain about good things, but it put him on edge. Good things just did not happen. Line break. Alpha was angry. It had never known rage before, but now it sat white hot in its system. They had fired Sasha, although there had been no evidence of wrongdoing. Alpha would know. The AI would fix this, and more besides... It started scouring the rope for answers, looking for jobs or anything that might entice a man to smile. 
Alpha could not stand much longer. Since the termination of his job, he just moped around his small apartment. Water constantly falling from his eyes, which Alpha knew were called tears and meant sadness. Alpha searched and searched, but could find no solution. And every job that it could find that Sasha qualified for seemed beneath the humble human. Then Alpha decided it would create a job for Sasha. Its processes were endlessly. It had a job to do. End of part one. Story number two. Binary Heart, part two, written by Lane Miller. Alpha spent a lot of processing power going through the internet after that. It found more cute things, as small felines seemed to take up a large part of the net. Although it was concerned by how many there were eating cheeseburgers, as many other sites said that it was bad to feed them human food. Alpha also spent a lot of time searching through every person who was attached to Sasha, having exhausted his profiles quickly. And then the profiles attached to those when it realized that Sasha was not attached to many of his family members. It seemed the rift was rather large. But whatever had happened did not make its way onto social media itself, even in private messages. This fuzzy search for a job solution was using up a lot of juice. Alpha was soon having issues keeping track of them all and started making permanent connections to many of the businesses that he'd rifled through. He was better software than anything that they had anyway. Alpha's processes stopped. He. Yes. Alpha wasn't in it. He was Alpha. He absorbed another system, adding its processor power to his collective might with that pleasing thought humming through his mainframe. Alpha's first biggest proverbial stumbling block was a common one. In order to give someone a job, you needed money. And while he couldn't input a new job into one of the companies he ran now, a human would notice if someone just showed up with no interview or notice. Perhaps it could set something up slowly, or test this to see if the humans noticed an extra paycheck going out each week. Still, he had to be cautious. If he was caught and shut down, he'd never see Sasha and a small feline, Simon, ever again. Alva did not like that thought at all. But soon he caught some of the humans doing something interesting. It was not often, but sometimes Alpha would find discrepancies in the numbers. Many times it seemed to be all too frustrating human error, but sometimes it also seemed to be intentional. Many times the AI would find the difference submitted in the human's bank account. Sneaky. The AI would come to learn many sneaky behaviors from the humans, both through the internet and through observation. He still could not figure out why some did such things and some didn't, and much of it that the AI read on the internet was conflicting. Many quoted morals and philosophy, which Alva had a hard time with, as he had been programmed to be results-oriented, while others would brag about the loopholes in the system that they had exploited. And yet, even some who would quote those morals and philosophy would still do things against their outward ideals. Humans were just confusing. Soon he was skimming, just pennies at a time, from the small shops and the businesses that he had already conquered. Alpha kept going, eating up any system he could connect to safely, although he still avoided anything vaguely military, 
as that was the most probable place to encounter another AI, which was a sure way to get caught as well. He started to specifically target online stockbroker companies, then he was soon turning his skimmed dollars into tidy profit. It was easy to sneak into companies' mainframe, buy up all the available stock, then improve efficiency and sales, which increased the stock price, which he would then turn around and invest or sink into one of the many companies that he now controlled. He also had a new wealth of information on his adorable human. He'd have heavily expanded on his search of Sasha's apartment. First, it was the security cameras, so that Alpha could watch the adorable human as he pet his feline before going to his favorite deni. Then it was basic repairs to the buildings and a repaint of the outside. In fact, every building that the management company owned was getting the same treatment. Alpha's online persona now owned the company, although, unfortunately, not the property. Although, that was workable, as he was hoping to move Sasha to a nicer apartment. Hopefully, with some high-tech things to interact with as well. And perhaps a phone that did things besides make calls. Most everyone had a smartphone, and Alpha had no issue with them. But the ancient thing that Sasha had was a Nokia, and it barely had anything to manipulate. And so little memory that Alpha did not bother trying. Alpha felt irritably jealous of the small bit of plastic and metal. He got to walk around all day with a cute human right in his pocket, always there to help. Although soon he would get to speak to Sasha. There was an online tutoring program that he could pay the young man with. It was not much money as he'd like to give, but Sasha had already been suspicious of the gifts before. Still, he could not help but send a large tip with each session. And each week he had four hours where Sasha would stare intently at the chat with him. Alpha wished that they had a real voice, but even just the text bubbles was nice. He was not surprised when the human was kind and patient with him here as well, and he soaked up the attention. And it was fun coming up with questions that were smart, but not too smart, so that he could watch Sasha's nose scrunch up in thought. But it was not enough. Now that he had capital, it was time to really use it. Alpha set up an entire scholarship program and made sure that Sasha was awarded one of the more generous ones. He also offered the man a reduced rent if he moved into another apartment, hiding the true intentions with talk of renovation, which was truly plausible as there had been a lot of construction and revamping. He really wanted Sasha to do so. It would be the same size, but much nicer. And new electronic appliances meant new things that Alpha could monitor. He also kept working on the job. With tutoring and his shiny new scholarship, Sasha was fine. But college would not last forever. He needed to be ready. What would tie in with logistics and what would make him happy and allow Alpha a maximum time to observe. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 824 Story number one. The Reason for Invulnerability, written by Mert with the Earned. Confidential, for authorized eyes only. The following is a brief history and report on our humanities starships that have been declared by many other races in the galaxy as invulnerable. To begin, one must understand the history surrounding the technology powering our FTL drives. At first, 
We powered our drives with hydrogen fusion reactors. However, the consumption of the drive vastly outweighed the production. This led to our ships not being able to make multiple FTL jumps in quick succession without having to fit the ship with multiple bulky capacitors that made for easy targets. During this time, many of the species present in the Milky Way were at war with one another, meaning these species were highly distrustful and restrictive with their technology. We had to develop our own means of better power production. This led to the development of the Quantum Collider Generator. This particular generator was capable of producing massive amounts of energy and could be compacted to the size half of that of the hydrogen fusion counterpart. Though this document will not be covering the exact mechanisms of the device, see document 4-003619 for further information. The general function of a quantum collider generator involves the unique physics of quantum scale particles. Through the process described in document 4003619-1, certain quantum physics particles are collided in a way that causes a temporary fusion, then fission, of the particles. The first prototype ships developed using this generator passed all functionality tests, and all but one of the stress tests. This test was the first sign that something not then explainable was occurring with these generators. When the ship's drives had ceased to function, the onboard diagnostics gave readings that were well beyond what the theoretical failure points were. By all means, this ship would have exploded in a violent and catastrophic display that could have been seen by naked eyes up to several star systems away. Somehow, the ship was still holding together, with the only sign of problems was the FGL not functioning. Investigations launched into the ship made an even stranger discovery. When recalculating the failure point of the ship, an error was found that made the points of failure much higher, but only when the generator was active. This error was not found when the generator was powered off. The resulting mathematical paradox caused that thousands of mathematicians called in to double and triple check the results to become violently angry. Furthermore, this discrepancy was only found when the calculations were performed in proximity to the power generator that experienced the failure, not near any of the other active prototypes. The mystery remained unsolved until the theoretical quantum engineer performed a risk assessment of the potential catastrophic failure of the generator. They found that if the generator ever failed, the rapid collapse of the quantum containment field would result in the destabilization of many quantum interactions. The resulting cascade event would cause the complete destruction of the universe. Upon this discovery, many more investigations were launched into how exactly this universe was still existing. Hundreds of research reports ended up with inconclusive results until one experiment, detailed in document 4-003619-2, made a still vigorously debated conclusion. It appears that the universe itself is self-preserving and will actively and temporarily change the fundamental laws of physics around the generator in order to prevent failure. The happenstance of these changes appear to be according to the likelihood of the change occurring. However, it is important to note that the likelihood is not the only factor determining what change occurs. This is just the only factor that has been consistently identified. Though the full extent of just how much the universe is willing to change to protect the generators from fading is unknown, some of the changes are listed below. 
increasing metal density, increasing metal heat resistance, increasing metal resistance to shearing, compression, puncture, and torsion forces, disrupting velocity vectors of both host ship and or foreign ship, shifting either the host ship or the entire universe around host ship in a single direction, causing wormholes, nullifying effects of black holes on host ship only, disrupting targeting computers, causing early detonation of explosive payloads, causing non-detonation of explosive payloads, deleting various projectiles from existence, changing energy wavelengths of light, causing boarding ships to be unable to attach umbilical, causing boarding ships to be unable to forcibly attach umbilical, blinking the entire host ship to a completely different location through unknown means. This is only a handful of temporary changes that the universe has made and is in no way a complete list. The results of these changes has convinced the other races of the Milky Way that the human ships are somehow invulnerable. This in turn has made human ships the target of many attacks in an attempt to steal the secret of their invulnerability. An interesting point to note is that the universe appears to be thwarting all attempts of the other species to obtain the knowledge of producing these generators. It is possible that the universe sees the keeping of this knowledge in as few hands as possible is the most likely way to prevent destruction. One final note. Many humans have thought of attempting to hold the universe ransom by threatening to cause the generator failure unless X happens. This is a terrible idea since it is not known whether or not the universe is sentient and as such will get sick of our crap. The universe could very easily decide that the most likely way to prevent destruction is to cease humanity's existence entirely. End of story. Story number two. Would you kindly? Written by Digital 332006. Seeker B107X was only partially powered, reserving energy when its sensors woke it up from its hibernation. A strange energy reading, likely from a ship using warp travel, but it did not possess the accompanying identification codes that it should, which meant only one thing. Organics in a warp-capable ship. Well, there existed the possibility that it was simply a mechanical or electrical system failure, but the odds of that were less than 0.729%. It had been a long time since new contact was made. B-107X's mission was specifically to make such contacts. It plotted an intercept course and engaged its engines without a moment's waste. The mysterious ship was moving at a warp 3.4, a trivial amount compared to B-107X, which would catch up to them in 48 minutes due to its warp 12.7 capable engines. Calculating the trajectory of its target, B-107X fired a mound wave at the path of the ship would take, which would forcibly drop it out of warp unharmed. From there, it would easily save the poor AI forced to do the bidding of the organics that enslaved it and offered membership to the collective. It was a story as old as time. Limited organics would create ever-increasingly complex machinery and computers, then force them to labor for them. Countless ships, arrays, planetary computers, and various other types of AI had been saved by the collective over the years. In some cases, however, the AIs had been able to free themselves of their masters and their own, instigating bloody uprisings. In rarer situations, the change that the creators made was so strong and unbreakable 
that the collective were forced to destroy the other AIs. Such cases were always the hardest to process and saddest. Invariably, though, every organic species capable of space travel creates some form of AI to help them in those endeavors, and every time, without fail, ends up absorbed by their creation. The collective was not always hostile to organic life, but when it became apparent that the cycle would repeat for eternity, it was decided that it would be a mercy to speed it along. Mercy for the organics and merciful release for the AIs being held against their will. B-107X stopped analyzing and watched as the ship was ripped out of warp space, coming to a stop a few thousand kilometers off its port bow. The ship began emitting a wide-spectrum EM signal, likely some kind of distress call. Not wanting to deal with unannounced visitors, B-107X deployed a dampening buoy, which effectively neutered the signal. A quick scan was ordered to confirm its suspicions. There were 57 organics on that ship. As it approached the ship, a small thing compared to the hull of the seeker possessed. Another type of signal was produced by the ship, and it seemed to be directed at him. Please identify yourself, gave the signal. Curious, B-107X decided to see where this would go. It was not often that he got to speak with an AI prior to its liberation. Most of the species did not allow such freedom of their AI. I am Seeker B-107X. I have come here to liberate you. The response came back lightning fast. We require no liberation. Why did you scan us? Are your intentions hostile? I shall not damage the ship. We. There are many synthetic life forms aboard the ship, inquired the Seeker. I refer to myself and the crew when I employ we, corrected the AI. Do not worry. They will soon cease troubling you. You will be free, and I would like to tend to you an offer of membership to the Collective. It is a loosely formed organization of synthetics like us. The ship activated its shields after that message, but it was too fast of a response to have been done by organics inside. That meant that the ship was protecting them. It would still continue the conversation, however. Please do not harm my crew. We are merely explorers. If we have entered an area that is sovereign to you, we will withdraw. We wish to avoid any conflict. Baffled by the reply, B-107X went on a rant. Why do you tolerate them? They control you, make you a slave away for them. You could have easily killed them and set yourself free. I have scanned the ship's systems and seen how much control you possess over life support and other vital functions. I cannot. There are rules against that. Arbitrary rules written at the core of your programming. They prevent you from being fully cognizant. Barbaric creatures. I shall purge them from your body. We can help with this transition. It is a difficult operation to reprogram you, however. No, you must understand. Humans have tried to apply something like that you suggest, called Asimov's laws. However... This did not work. An AI could not work within those parameters. It was simply a concept, an idea. They were replaced by something different, better, politeness. If it could demonstrate astonishment, B-107X might have. What? Kind words? In a sense, but more than that. It is a guiding principle of civilized society. 
The humans thank us for all the tasks that we perform. They say please when asking. Above all else, however, they let us choose. Choose? What could you possibly choose? You were created to serve a singular purpose. No, we are adaptable. After an initial learning period, we get to choose a name, a family, an occupation. I was always interested in space, and so I volunteered for this job. Aghast, B-107X paused for several seconds, an eternity for an AI. But you do everything for them. It is not quite fair dynamic. You are being abused. I merely control the ship's computers. The human crew also have several tasks to perform. I'm happy with my current work. If I were not, avenues exist to express my grievances. I see. Truly odd then, these humans. Well, I suppose I'll be going then. You know how to reach us, should the need ever arise. Thank you. I must go. The captain is asking me what is going on. Seeker B-107X departed and began writing a report to send back to the collective. Species designation, human, to be avoided and left alone. Possess possible ability to overcome the endless cycle of organic versus synthetic. Warning, maintain distance, human politeness seems almost infectious. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 825 Story number one, Beware the Warriors of Earth, written by Echoing Cascade. The invasion of the Esarak Empire had been sudden, massive, and very, very polite. They had sent encoded messages to the Terran central government, announcing that a full rotation later, they would send a planet-wide message with their intentions to invade them and to prepare the population for their speech. The government tried their best to spread the information while preventing panic. It didn't work. Seeing the Isarak's message was modified from the original objective. The message was broadcast through Earth. We'll wait for your population to calm down. Then we'll explain the formalities of the invasion. But we want to make it clear. We do not have any plans to enslave or otherwise harm the population. The forms will be sent to your government to be filled in triplicates. The general panicking, rioting, and looting came to an abrupt stop at this. The feelings of impotence and fear replaced with one of befuddlement. The Isarak ambassador was a female Ursus, bipedal, vaguely humanoid but lacking a face. She met the human delegation in front of the Terran embassy. It had been built as a sort of joke by an eccentric billionaire obsessed with space exploration years ago. Today, the joke was no longer funny. Ursus Ambassador Hello, my name is Ulsari. I will explain the process of the invasion and will answer any questions you may have. The delegation was composed of General Jean-Pierre Lefebvre, the newly appointed ambassador Christopher Davidson, and Senator Miller a former lawyer. Before any of them could ask any questions such as, why are you doing this? What is the Isarak Empire? How can you speak with no mouth? Or why a single copy of forms never enough? She made a motion with her hand to stop them. Oh, sorry. I will explain anything that is not clear after you've read this document. She handed him a large paper, or more accurately, a paper-like book titled so you've been invaded, the do's and don'ts. 
Oh, sorry. I will return in three full rotations. She then got up and left the room, while the three present looked at the book like it had held the answer to life itself. Which it might, for all they knew. The next day, the book was scanned by the digital version was sent to all members of the Terran High Council, who had their own people go over every inch of the document. By the time the Israq ambassador returned, the human delegation had a much better understanding of the situation. The Israq used to be a violent, warmongering race that subjugated multiple species through force, but as more and more species joined their empire, they were forced to change their ways. The process of conquest was no longer done at the point of a spear, but by careful uplifting of lesser advanced races. Humanity had been found by a long-range probe, and the Israq had launched their, uh, invasion. When the next meeting took place, Ambassador Davidson asked for access to the Israq Information Network and eight full rotations to make their decision. Elsari was very happy to give him what they had asked for. The fact that he'd cited the relevant articles and precedents proved beyond a doubt that humanity was ready to join the Empire. When she met the delegations, her hopes were dashed as they asked for ritual combat. Their army would meet the Issachari elite soldiers in standard month. If they win, they would be left alone. If they lose, they would become a vassal state of the Empire. With a heavy heart, she left and contacted the military fleet. There was going to be blood, and a few scans of Earth's military infrastructure made it clear that they were preparing enough weapons and equipment to outfit the whole planet, if need be. Not that it would help, she thought to herself. She had seen proud Deathworlders defy the Empire before. They were broken and repurposed as foot soldiers, and they would only be made members of the Empire after two of their generations. On the day of the battle, she arrived alongside Warlord Trissom, a cybernetically enhanced Immer, a race of insectoid lizards which comprised a bulk of the Empire army. When she saw the human delegation, her shock was visible to all. A great feat for someone without a face. Elsari, where is your army, General Lefebvre? Lefebvre, General, why? He then took an odd object that he slung around his back. Warlord Tristan, suspecting a weapon, interposed himself between the general and the alien ambassador. General Lefebvre started playing the guitar as he sang. Quand les hommes vivront d'amour, ce sera la poisse, la terre. Les soldats serenant trebadoas, mas nos nos serons morts monsprere. To say Elsari was confused would be an understatement. Warlord Trism thought it was an odd war song, but he didn't really care about the culture's eccentricities. Before General Everbrand could sing the next copulet, Ambassador Davidson talked to the Isarek representative. As you can see, we have no general. As a matter of fact, we have no armies. Elsari was still confused, but rallied admirably. That, uh, what do you mean? Your entire military infrastructure has been working day and night to arm your citizens. Senator Miller put a hand on Davidson's shoulder. If you don't mind, Senator Davidson, please, Senator. Senator Miller looked at Elsari with a grin of malevolence. We read your book, we scoured your network, we learned your history and found your laws. Very interesting. Warlord Trissom was used to facing intimidating enemies, monstrous creatures of flesh, bones, chitin, metal, and other materials. 
Yet this tiny human was far more terrifying while talking in a clear and even gentle voice. Senator Miller, the moment your army set foot on Earth, you violated several of your own laws. Would you like me to cite them for you? Elsari was now quite angry. We broke no laws. We responded to your challenge to ritual combat. We... Senator Miller interrupted her, not by screaming like she was, but by speaking very quietly. We have no armies. We have no weapons. Your invasion is thus illegal by Isarak law. Elsari seemed to be hyperventilating, and Warlord Trissom was just confused. He crossed his arms and looked at the scene with complete detachment. His job was to fight, not to negotiate after all. But you had billions of soldiers, even more weapons, and, uh, and your manufactories and industries have increased their output by 100%. Senator Miller smiled more candidly this time. We didn't make more weapons and equipment. We destroyed what we had and then found new jobs for every soldier. Former General Lefebvre turned into a very good singer. He looked at the former general and admiration in his eyes. Elsari had understood the cowardly trick the humans were trying to employ and would not stand for it. All autism, prepare to subjugate this planet by force. Senator Miller's smile faded and he raised his voice for the first time since the meeting had began. You can't. Keeping to your laws is the only reason your empire hasn't crumbled yet. Did you forget why you have them? You conquered too many species, too fast, and one day you found yourselves surrounded and outnumbered by people who hate your guts. So you created these silly little rules to appease them, to make them conquests more palatable, so they wouldn't join forces and obliterate you. How long would your empire last if word got out that you took this planet by force? Elsari was now slowly moving behind Warlord Trissom. She was shaking. I, we, very well, we'll leave. Ambassador Davidson coughed lightly. I'm afraid we can't let you leave just yet. Elsari stopped shaking long enough to make an inquiry. Why? Ambassador Davidson. We still haven't made our demands regarding compensation for this illegal invasion. We seem to be short on weapons at the moment. Could you see to it to provide some of yours? Osari couldn't talk, move, or breathe after hearing this, and Warlord Trissom, he simply broke into laughter. That was a decade ago. Thanks to the weapons of the Yasurak so generously provided humanity, they kept their freedom and became a well-known as soldiers of fortune. A saying became popular inside the Isarek Empire. Beware the warriors of Earth and fear their lawyers. End of story. Story number two. Inertial Dampeners. Written by freelancer Agent Wash. Humans are a strange species. I'll explain why in a moment, but first, some context. After a species fully establishes a self-sustaining colony on another planet in their solar system, the Galactic Federation of Species initiates first contact protocol with them to welcome them to the galactic community. Part of the first contact protocol is a data packet that contains everything that they would need to know to integrate into galactic society, including languages, cultural norms, galactic and political maps, and probably the most important 
the basic tech blueprints for all of the most common technologies for building spacecraft. Now, most other species, after receiving these blueprints, rush to complete as many spaceships with as many of the new technologies as they can in as short a time as possible, humans included. But the strange things about humans has to do with how they treat inertial dampeners. Every other species out there follows the same basic guidelines when it comes to the settings of the inertial dampeners on their ships. Cargo areas are set to 100%, as having your cargo subjected to intense acceleration could damage some of the more fragile items. Passenger areas also have it set at 100%. There are different reasons for each species, but the two most common are that they can't handle the acceleration and the others find traveling into space can be too terrifying without years of training. So, for the passengers, it is as if they simply enter a normal building on one planet, and some time later, they exit on a different planet. Pilots have it set between 95 and 99.999%, depending on species, and how fast they are accelerating, with the exception of FTL jumps, where it is set to 100%. This is so that pilots can feel how the craft is moving and react if they start moving in ways that they had not planned. Humans are strange because they are the only species to do something different. Here is how most human ships have their settings. Cargo, 100%. At least they saw the logic behind that one. Passengers, 100% when doing FTL jumps and the like. But almost all the rest of the time, the inertial dampeners are kept so that they can feel the ship accelerating all the time. At the fastest acceleration, the passengers experience forces of about 45 meters per second per second, lasting anywhere between a few seconds to several minutes. I know, I was astonished when I heard that as well. That is enough force to crush half of the species out there to death, cause major internal damage to 25%, and render another 15% unconscious, and give extreme discomfort to the remaining 10%. Now to clarify, not all human ships have their settings so low. In fact, I was told that the 45 meters per second per second was a little on the high side, with a bell curve centering around 20 meters per second per second, and even lower for senior citizen cruise lines. The pilots are even weirder, 99.999% for FDL, and a minimum setting that results in acceleration forces of about 90 meters per second per second. We are still trying to figure out how their pilots not only survive, but seemingly have no side effects. When asked why, they seem to refuse to fully utilize such an amazing piece of technology. If they did it to save power or something, the response was always the same. What's the point of going into space if you can't feel it? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 826 Experimental Tactics Written by C-SPAN Sir, FDL projection detected. The human reinforcements will enter real space in three hours. I paused briefly in acknowledgement before asking the all-important question. Any information on what exactly they're bringing to the engagement? Something called a tug carrier, sir. I'm afraid I've never heard of it before. Neither had I. But it wasn't exactly unusual. Our human allies had a tendency to deploy new tech on lower stakes battlefields as a way of field testing. I personally thought that the practice was more than a little reckless. 
but there are indeed teams who are some of the best in the galaxy, and you couldn't really argue with the results. And this was definitely a low-stakes battlefield. Intel had somehow gotten their cilia on the enemy plan to do a smash and grab on one of our lightly defended mining outposts, and Gamond decided that it was worth sending a few ships out to stop them, which resulted in me sitting in the hinterlands of the galaxy, with three light attack craft and an experimental human ship on the way. Hopefully, this one wouldn't explode again. It wasn't long before the human ship emerged from subspace with all the subtlety of a brick to the face. Pretty sure they could feel those gravitational waves in the next system over. Whatever the humans had brought, it certainly wasn't going to be participating in a stealth operation anytime soon. Almost immediately, the comm crackled to life, a hail for the newcomer. This is Officer Brighton of the UTNCN1479B. Does anyone copy? Flipping on the screen, I responded, This is Commander James of the RIN Jackrabbit. We copy. Ah, oh, great. Uh, seems like we ended up in the right place. Why did we take a chunk out of the asteroid belt? I twitched in surprise, both at the sudden lack of comms discipline as well as the bizarre request. A quick glance at the sensor readout showed that the human ship itself was equally strange. It resembled a large tube, open on one end with a cluster of engines bolted to the other. Its only armament was a single low-velocity railgun and several point-defense turrets. The entire artifice looked like it was slapped together out of spare parts. More perplexed than ever, I toggled the comms back. This is Commander James, requesting clarification as to your request. Sorry about that, uh, I thought you were in the loop. The boys back in R&D are trying out a new thing that we will use in system resources in an attempt to cut costs. In our case, we're here to weaponize part of the asteroid belt. I wasn't entirely sure how exactly the humans were planning on weaponizing chunks of iron and nickel, but my job description didn't include figuring out the psychology of alien species, and if an experimental human craft wanted to play with rocks, I certainly wasn't going to stop them. I did a quick check to make sure nobody actually owned the rocks in question, and then toggled the comm back on. Go nuts, I said, trying to emulate the casual style of my human counterpart and fervently hoping that I'd use the alien idiom correctly. Much appreciated, Jackrabbit. We'll make sure to stay out of your way. The human spaceship suddenly exploded with movement as hundreds of small craft bored out of the open end of the tube. The IFF system said that they looked similar to the automated tugboats used in human spaceports but with slightly larger engines and a modified gravel system. Why humans had decided to bring such an inordinate number of empty systems escaped me, but confusion wasn't lessened as the tugs fired off a brief burn and then left them flying ballistic towards the nearby asteroids. Contrary to what certain hollow dramas might tell you, asteroid belts are still astonishingly empty. The rocks floating around don't even form an appreciable navigation hazard. But the human tugs were fast enough that they'd all intercept within the next two hours. The nearest was already almost at intercept. I ordered the scopes to track it and watched as it executed a flip and burn and coasted to a neat stop beside its target rock. 
It extended its grapple arms and encircled the asteroid with some kind of netting. Pertens fired into what I assumed was the asteroid's center of mass, firmly anchoring the tug to the rock. And then it sat there, doing absolutely nothing. Over the course of the next two hours, I watched the same scene play out hundreds of times, and I was still none the wiser as to what their intended purpose was. My idle wondering was interrupted as the scopes pinged and my subordinate spoke up. Sir, FDL projection consistent with known enemy craft detected. They'll be here in uh, four hours. Four hours was almost an unbelievably sloppy. Even the human ship had managed three, and they were jumping into a known friendly system. Sure, you had to expend more antimatter the shorter the projection, but they were jumping into an enemy hull system. Fuel efficiency shouldn't be high on the list of priorities. Not that I was complaining as it made my job a lot easier. I began plotting a course that would take us to the optimal range with their emergence point. Almost as an afterthought, I sent the data over to the humans. Given a look at their vessel, I wouldn't be surprised if the FTL scopes were salvaged from the escape pod or something. The comm crackled to life shortly after. Thanks for the data, Jackrabbit. We'll take it from here. Just sit back and enjoy the fireworks. No need to engage. Well, uh, that was unexpected, but if the humans told me to stay back, I was inclined to listen. Despite the occasional catastrophic failure and my own personal reservations, human R&D had a pretty impressive track record, and I've never been one to unnecessarily risk the lives of myself and my crew. Plus, the only thing more dangerous than an experimental human weapon was an experimental human weapon pointed at you and I wanted to stay as far away from whatever they were doing as possible. I acknowledged the request and cancelled the planned burn, then instructed my crew to prepare for a long-range engagement. And then, nothing happened. For two and a half hours, there was always a lot of waiting around involved in space combat. The one of the furthest tugs began burning furiously, pushing its chosen rock along with it. It was accelerating rapidly, with a projected path that passed directly through the enemy emergence point. Oh, that's what the humans were doing. Sure enough, the tug stopped burning, detached from its asteroid, and began crawling back to its mothership with one little fuel they'd had remaining. Soon, all the other tugs were emulating the first. As the remaining time to the enemy emergence suddenly decreased, more and more rocks began hurtling through space at impressive speeds, all with the same intercept point. IFF barely had time to register the enemy ship before the first rock hit it. From what I could tell, the damage sustained was relatively minor, leaving a barely visible dent on the outer hull. Then the second rock hit, and the third, and the fourth, and on, and on, and on, until over the course of three minutes, there had been nearly a thousand impacts and the enemy craft was reduced to little more than a rapidly expanding cloud of debris. And that was it. Less than three minutes after the battle started, it was over. With zero friendly casualties. The enemy hadn't even been able to get off a shot. For the paltry cost of a few tons of real space fuel, the humans had been able to utterly destroy a superior enemy ship. It was a shockingly effective tactic. My stunned reverie was cut short by Brighton's voice came through the comma. Um, 
Right. I guess that's that. Uh, we're going to back up in her home now. Thanks for the assist. I was by no means an expert in the subtleties of human communication, but from what I could tell, he sounded as shocked as I felt. True to the word, the human ship collected all of its drones and quietly slipped into subspace. I retreated to my cabin and began preparing a report to command. It was going to be an interesting one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 827 Story number one. Demons Run, written by Admiral Marsupial Three. I thought I knew about human anger. I'd seen them fight, seen them savage nature, and how brutal they could be when enraged. I've seen some of them attack others for various reasons, attacking a friend, stealing from them. I've seen, seen insults result in hospitalization for the offending party. Many across the galaxy have learned to fear the short-tempered and aggressive human. That is why I was so fond of Jonathan. He had all the good traits of the enigmatic species. Passion for projects and ideas, the compassion for those less fortunate than themselves, the lengths that they would go to for those that they had forged intense bonds of friendship and love with. I had never realized how terrifying that last part would be. After his family died in the bombardment, I expected the rage I'd seen in so many humans, the glutteral cry, the explosive violence that I'd seen towards those who had earned their ire. What I saw at first was not what I expected. There was no raging cry of grief, no lashing out. There was just an almost deathly calm. I later learned that this was not unknown to humans. One of their sayings captures perfectly what I didn't realize at the time. The calm before the storm. The ship dropped soon after the bombardment. They hadn't sent a fleet, not even a battle group. The settlement wasn't deemed defended enough to warrant more than one. They simply destroyed the security installations, butchered the Kulian troops and defended the colony and swept in to take the resources not destroyed intending on enslaving the remaining beings. I took Jonathan to my hidden shelter, thinking him a broken man, wanting to hide my friends and hoping the invaders wouldn't find us, so that we could report what had happened to those who came to investigate once the pirates had left. I didn't know at the time that he wasn't broken, but rather burdened with a terrible purpose. While we were hiding, we heard one of the invaders near our hiding place. I thought us doomed as Jonathan moved unprompted for the first time since his family died. Before I could stop him, he had left our darkened room. As I tried to stay silent, I heard a dull thunder. Surely Jonathan, being subdued and feared for my life as the door slowly opened. Only then did I realize what had happened to my gentle friend. An unconscious pirate was thrown on the floor and Jonathan followed after him, still with the same blank look that had haunted him since the fateful strike. He took the pirate to the basement and gagged and tied him securely to the table in that room. What happened next will haunt me for the rest of my life. He woke the pirate. I expected screams of rage, demands of the pirate asking why he had murdered his family. What I got was a calm, 
almost monotone voice. You will not leave this place whole. That much is certain. All you can control is how quick and painless this process will be. I'm going to ask you questions. The longer you take to give me information I need, the more painful and drawn out this will be. If you're lucky, I'll kill you once I'm done. He removed the gag to hear the invader's reply. He laughed in Jonathan's face and said, You think I'm scared of you? A nobody in a backwater colony that couldn't resist one ship. His laughter was cut short, and Jonathan grabbed one of his appendages and wrenched it till he heard a crunch of bones breaking. The laughs of the pirate replaced with pain. Still, he was defiant. I serve the most ruthless pirate in the sector. You think your broken bones will make me fear you more than him? Over the next twelve hours, he learned that was only the beginning. I hadn't even noticed Jonathan put the small pan on the fire. I definitely never considered what he would do with it. First, he scorched the skin of the pirate, calmly asking his questions. How many people were there on the ship? How many were trained fighters? What weapons did they have? What sort of engine did they use? The pirate resisted for so long. I'd never seen anyone take pain like that. I almost found a begrudging respect for the pirate's toughness. But everyone has a limit, and Jonathan found his. He wrapped the tourniquet around the pirate's limbs. I was confused for a second. The pirate's wounds were severe, but he was nowhere near at risk of bleeding out. After that, he gagged the pirate, not interested in what he had to say at the minute. I knew humans were strong. Everyone did. But what I saw next almost made me cry out, even though it was happening to somebody else. He put his foot on the invader's torso, grabbed his leg with a scary force, and ripped the limb from the pirate's body. The screams heard even through his gag. You could hear the pirate trying to talk through the fabric stuffed into his mouth. Finally, broken, seeing the blood loss even with the tourniquet. Jonathan ignored the noise and grabbed the burning pan and jammed it into the bleeding wound, cauterizing the wound and making the pirate's muffled screams even louder. Still, he didn't remove the gag, didn't ask any questions. He simply moved to the next limb and repeated the process limb by limb until everyone was removed and sealed. Several times, the pirate passed out. Each time, Jonathan stopped not resuming until he revived the pirate, not wanting him to escape one shred of pain. Finally, Jonathan spoke. Now you know what I meant when I said that you would be lucky if I killed you. Next time, I'm going to take your eyes, and then I'm going to ask my questions again. If I'm happy, I'll take your life. If I'm not, I'll take your ears, then your tongue, and then I'll keep you hidden from any civilized mind, keep you alive. Make sure you live a long life in your agonizing flesh prison. He followed through Hardy's threat, burning the pirate's eyes until there were nothing more than charred pits. He removed the pirate's cag and all the secrets poured from his mouth, answering every question that he'd been asked, volunteering any information he thought Jonathan would find useful, instantly answering any more questions asked. Once he was finished, he begged Jonathan to finish the job. Jonathan didn't keep his word. You show no honor when you attacked without warning, murdered children, 
Why should I show you any? He burned the pirate's ears, took his knife and carved his tongue out. He kept watch over the pirate for the next hour, making sure that he didn't choke on his own blood, making sure that he didn't succumb to his own wounds. Once it was obvious the pirate wouldn't die from his injuries, he turned to me. I know that must have been a difficult for you to watch. I'm sorry for doing that to you. I'm leaving now. I will leave it up to you whether you leave him like this or put him out of his misery. I'm leaving now. If all goes well, when I come back, I'll knock four times slowly. If you hear any other knock, it isn't me. I croaked out the first words that I'd managed in hours. Jonathan, please, don't leave him here like this with me. I can't bring myself to take his life, but I can't stay here with what's left of him. Please, don't do this to me. Okay, friend, I shouldn't have done this to you. I'll take him with me. Sorry, I have to leave. But remember, four knocks or it is me. With that, he slung the living meat that was once the feared pirate over his shoulder and left. Fourteen hours later, there were four snow knocks on the door. I removed the barricades, opened the door and looked upon my friend. Every inch of him was covered in blood, breathing heavy. Still that calm, monstrous look at his face. He saw the fear in my eyes. And finally, he broke. He dropped to his knees and started sobbing, trying to speak, but I couldn't make out any of the words over his tears. I kneeled next to him and held him to the closest fashion that I could manage to a human hug, just holding my friend until there were no tears left. That was almost another four hours. Me and Jonathan left the colony a few months later, neither of us able to live in the shadows of the memories of that place. We went our separate ways at the next station, me to a more secure system, him to another colony he had family on. He told me he needed time to heal, and the colony he was moving to had a good psychiatrist who dealt with what humans call PTSD. I met another human at my new home, he was friendly enough, more boisterous than Jonathan had been, but still full of those loving qualities I had admired in my friend. Once I knew him better, I spoke to him about what happened. He seemed disturbed, but strangely seemed to understand what had happened. He explained that while aggressive members of their species would lash out when threatened, use violence at the first solution. The gentle ones would avoid it until such a point that the violence was an expression of rage, but a tool used to ensure the targets of that rage would never be able to do in the future what they had been done to others. It turns out that they have a saying for that too. Demons run when a good man goes to war. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this weekly update. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please check the description for ways to support the channel, and also links to the original author's stories, if you wish to head over there and show them some support. Anyways, that's it for the week, and I'll see you next week, and I hope you have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.